Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. exercise podcast the bears were on a bye and honestly we um we didn't want to break down their chances against the bye so we're going to instead we're going to shift gears and we are going to do a completely different podcast we're going to do a deep dive on one of our favorite movies so uh, my only friend who's an actor mike pusateri is here with us as always and we are going to break down the 1983 classic the right stuff. And now you're all like, that's great. You morons picked a movie that's <laughs> 37 years old. Well, yeah, we did. Yeah, they record so. these things and they show them again. You, you don't, it, it's not a play. You guys can still right. watch it. Uh, so as always, I'm Andy from uh, Pointless Exercise and Discipio and all that other stuff. And Mike is from uh, MikePusateri.com. And the, uh, but your Twitter is at MikePusateri. At Mike Pusateri. Uh, I'm on the Insta that I am Mike Pusateri and IMDb, where I am uh, Mike Pusateri 2, for all of you keeping score at home. What was Mike Pusateri 1 in? Anything exciting? Something called Gone Baby Gone. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Go figure. And I remember at the time people were saying, oh, yeah, I didn't say you were in Gone Baby Gone. I'm like, nah. Nope. Not you, didn't, me. you didn't get a stray check or anything? <laughs> no, did not get one of those. No. Well, let's light the candle, Andy. Let's light this candle. <laughs> so, um, The Right Stuff was a, uh, it's a movie based on a Tom Wolfe book, which is based on the, uh, the biggest ruse in the history of the world that America has a space program. As we all know, it's fake. Oh, wait, no, we don't know that. Um, this was before they had to fake the moon landings. They actually strapped people on the top of a ballistic missile and launched them into space. Um, but the movie came out in 1983 and I was a wee young lad and I don't know when I saw it first. I know I didn't see it in the theater, but I think I saw it relatively soon after that. That would have been about the time we got our satellite dish. So, um, the ability to see... Movies not long after they came out were a thing, and we may have even rented it. I, I don't. It's a th- movie's over three hours long, 
a trip to Blockbuster for the right stuff, perhaps. Yeah, did it come on? It came on at least two. Yeah, tapes. would have had to come on two. Yeah. <laughs> two tapes. And I feel like we used to own the video tapes. I do not own the movie, which I didn't realize. I looked around for it forever. Uh, but it's on HBO Max. So if you get HBO Max, which if you get HBO, whether you know it or not, you get HBO Max. Um, so that's how I was able to watch it again. I have seen it conservatively 20 times in my life, I think. Uh, and for a very long time, I've been um, repeating quotes from it that other people have no idea that I have been. But one of them we'll get to that I know I've been saying since I was probably 12. Um, really stupid. But uh, So, Mike, when, when did you first see the right stuff? I think it would have been probably um, on cable as well. I don't think I saw it in the theater. In fact, I didn't see it in the theater. So and did, you, did you have the weird thing where you saw it a bunch of times before you ever saw it all? Yeah, because it's so long. Yeah. Right? Or, or you're like, wait a minute, is this how this movie starts? Yeah. I've seen it five times. I've never seen the very beginning. Yeah, it could have been one of those. It was, to- it was definitely one of those. Um, it was just, it was so st- the subject matter was, is always uh, really interesting, but the movie, it was just so stylized in such a unique way that I had never seen, I can never recall seeing a film like that, really, was how unique it was in their presentation of it and the filming, and that really drew me to that movie. And I think it still makes it really rewatchable. Yeah. I, I've probably seen it 10 to 15 times and would watch it again this weekend. The, you know. the special effects, which are almost all practical, the file footage that they got, um, some of the Russian stuff they got, no one had ever seen before. They unearthed it, and the first time, the first time anybody outside of like the CIA had ever seen it was in the movie, because um, the Russian space program was so secret. And then it's it's really funny, like it's a legitimately funny movie. So yeah. it's this it's this weird combination of. Uh, you know, thrilling and patriotic and funny. And it's just exceedingly well-made. You would not, you can watch the movie if you'd never seen it and you have to guess when, what year you would not think 1983. No, definitely not. Other than, than, you know, you look at Dennis Quaid and you're like, (laughs) yeah, he's 11. So how, how long ago was this? Right. Um, But yeah, that's one of one of the things about. I think what makes it so rewatchable is that you don't feel like it's. Oh, this was when they tried to make a space movie in the eighties. Well, there's so many authentic touches to it, like when they're you know when they're sitting when the um, Eisenhower and Johnson and all the all the all the government officials and the chiefs are sitting in this conference room, and it's just something as simple as they have to find a plug Mm -hmm. for the. (laughs) for the projector you realize how primitive it was back then and how um how just life in general was so primitive and uh the technology was so really basic and then under that backdrop you're trying to figure out how to launch a space program yeah well and the guy who they got to play ike looks exactly like ike Exactly. Like, honestly, yeah, you would think, holy, holy shit. Well, Wasn't he dead by true. then? That's true. I mean, uh, Scott Glenn looks a hell of a lot like Alan Shepard. Ed Harris looks a lot like uh, um, John Glenn. Yeah. 
I remember as a kid being confused by the whole Scott Glenn, John Glenn thing. I was like, why didn't they just have him play John Glenn? I was like, well, because he's a foot taller and doesn't look anything like him. His persona is completely wrong for the part. Other than that, you're right, because they have the same last name. They have the same last name. Yeah. But, you know, Fred Ward looks a lot like Gus Grissom. I mean, they uh, they definitely, you could tell they took it to that detail to really make sure, at least for the more more well-known guys, that they looked, they resembled the actual uh, people. Yeah. Um, yeah, we'll get to Fred Ward. He's one of my favorite actors. He's just, there's just something about him that he's from the Harrison Ford school of, I'm going to be this in every movie, but <laughs> right. it'll somehow work. Just trust me. I'll yeah. just be myself but by the end of it. You'll and you'll always be able to tell who I was in what movie, even though I'm I don't change the way I act ever. Whether he's escaping Alcatraz or being shot at into space, is the exact same guy. Yeah, he's the same guy. He's great. So uh, the movie starts with um, voiceover, which is always a little dicey, but this is it's it's a great beginning to the movie, and so um, the. I guess I'll just read the thing because I like it. I'll even do my, I'll try to be Levon Helm. Cool. There was a demon that lived in the air. They said that whoever challenged him would die. Their controls would freeze up. Their planes would buffet wildly and they would disintegrate. The demon lived at Mach 1 on the meter, 750 miles an hour, where the air would no longer move out of the way. He lived behind a barrier, which they said no man could pass. They called it the sound barrier. Then they built a small plane, the X-1, to try and break the sound barrier. And men came to the high desert of California to ride it. They were called test pilots. And no one knew their names. How's that? That's pretty good. Yeah, I think so. so. I like that. There was a demon that lived in the air. They said whoever challenged him would die. Their controls would freeze up. Their planes would buffet wildly. And they would disintegrate. The demon lived at Mach 1 on the meter, 750 miles an hour where the air could no longer move out of the way. He lived behind a barrier through which they said no man could ever pass. They called it the sound barrier. Then they built a small plane, the X-1, to try and break the sound barrier. And men came to the high desert of California to ride it. They were called test pilots, and no one knew their names. So, uh, yeah, Levon Helm played a real person in the movie. He played a guy named Jack Ridley, who was uh, one of was a, he was also a you wouldn't know it from the thing. He seems like he's like um, like a guy with a jumpsuit who hangs out, um, but he was an actual test pilot himself. Uh, he was Colonel Jackie Linwood Ridley, 
Uh, he was an aeronautical engineer, an Air Force test pilot, and chief of the Air Force's Flight Test Engineering Laboratory. He helped develop and test Cold War-era military aircraft, worked on the X-1, which was the first aircraft to achieve supersonic flight. Um, and he was he's highly respected among fellow test pilots, most notably Chuck Yeager. Yeah, I was going to say, he's basically Yeager's guy. Yeah, he's the guy who always had the gum. Hey, Ridley, you got any beamings? Yeah, I think I got a stick. Loan me some, will you? I'll pay you back later. Fair enough. Always had the beamings. And the man quick with a saw to, to uh, make a handle out of a broomstick if that is needed. That's one of my favorite little touches is, so, um, yeah, we'll just tell us right now. So Jaeger hurts his shoulder the day before he's going to go up and try to break the sound barrier and tells um, Ridley, he goes, I got a little problem. Um, He's like, I can't, I can't reach over to shut the da-. He calls it to shut the damn door, which he means the canopy to the plane. <clears throat> so Ridley goes and finds a janitor and cuts the last, I don't know, 18 inches off of the guy's broom. And my favorite part is he takes it, and the guy grabs the broom to sweep again and then just gives this look like, well, shit, this isn't going to work anymore. But still, right. he keeps trying to sweep with a broom that's, you know. <laughs> that's and and Ridley twists it like it's a you know like it's a pistol or something. Yeah, he takes the you know the handle, but it's those types of touches that make the movie so so much fun. So he uh, they're up in the it, to me that one part never made sense to me. So the 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 supersonic jets. I don't know if they didn't want to waste fuel taking off or whatever, but they would strap them under a bigger plane. And then they'd get to a certain altitude, and they would just drop the plane. Pilot would fire up the jet and take off. It always seemed weird to me that the pilot didn't get in the plane before it took off. There they are in the middle of the sky, and they're climbing around on top of this jet, trying to get in the plane at like 20,000 feet, which made no sense to me. (laughs) But uh, so Ridley's helping Jaeger get in the plane, and he hands him the little piece of uh, broom handle, and he goes... He goes, hey, look, stick this in the handle. Take your good arm and just wang it down. Wang it down. (laughs) Ever since I was a pre-teenager, I've probably told people to just wang it down 7,000 times. (laughs) Doing stuff on the farm, you know, like if we were, you know, dad did like a wrench, but just wang it down. And, you know, it came from that. Now, the only reason that Jaeger, we learn, is even uh, piloting this is because the guy that they wanted to pilot the plane, Slick. Yep. Um, I think, it, what did he demand? What did he want? How much? $100,000 or something like that? So Slick was Chalmers H. Slick Goodwin. And he was a, <laughs> he was a privateer. So he, was a, um, he wasn't affiliated with the military. He was just a pilot. And he had already flown the X-1. And he nearly broke the... the uh, sound barrier on it, so he was the logical choice to go up the next time, and he demanded one hundred and fifty thousand dollars to break the sound barrier. Now, in the movie, they just happen to be in Pancho's Happy Bottom Riding Club. Jaeger's sitting at at a different table with uh, Ridley, and he overhears this, and so they come over and they ask him if he wants to give it a shot. He's like, "Yeah, we can probably do that." And they're like, "Well," and then they're very hesitantly asking him how much he wants. And he goes, right. well, you know, 
government's already paying me. Yeah, the Air Force well, because uh, the Air well, Force first is already first paying me. First he goes, well, how much you got? Oh, yeah. Then, <laughs> yeah, which scares the shit out of him. All right. Then he quickly pivots to, nah, the Air Force give me a salary already. Isn't that right, Major? Yeah. And, so, and we, we learned the salary. Yeah. They go back to the table and said, well, what are we paying? $283. A week? A month. Oh, a that's month. very good. <laughs> so what are we going to do now? That guy in the corner. Jaeger's his name. He's some kind of war hero. Shot down five Germans in one day. They say he's a natural-born stick-and-rudder man. Express liaison man for the Air Force, I think. You know of any problems with him? Only one. What's that? Holding him back. Major. Say there, Jaeger. Sir? We were just talking to uh, Slick here about the sound barrier. Is that right? And we feel that the X-1 is ready to have a go at it. We think the X-1's got the answer to go beyond Mach 1. If there is any beyond. So what do you think, Kevin? Well, I'll tell you what, half these engineers never been off the ground, you know. I mean, they're liable to tell you that the sound barrier's a brick wall in the sky. It'll rip your ears off if you try to go through it. If you ask me, I don't believe the damn thing even exists. Waitress, a drink from Mr. Yeager here. No, thanks, I got one so, do you think you want to have a go at it? Might. But uh, since, as you say, this sound barrier doesn't really exist, uh, how much... How much you got? No, I'm just joking. The Air Force is paying me already. Ain't that right, sir? Well, sure, Jaeger, but... So when do we go? Well, how about tomorrow morning? I'll be there. See you there. How much are you paying him? I think it's $283. A week? A month. Well, that's not bad. Not bad. <laughs> <laughs> but Pancho, she steps up. Not only is he going to get $283 to do this, he's going to get a steak with all the trimmings. So that made it completely worth it. So if there's any hesitation, that certainly put it over the top because that had to be worth about 80 cents probably in those days, that steak dinner. Oh, and I'm sure in the middle of, you know, the high desert in California, that's a quality steak too. <laughs> I'm sure they really you know, have, they have access to great beef. You know what's funny about that? You, you, th- you think, I mean, it looks like it's totally in the middle of nowhere, which it still kind of is. But you know where Ed- Edwards is in relation to Los Angeles? It's like it's less than hundred miles away. Yeah. <laughs> it's not that far. Yeah. <laughs> kind of makes it seem like it's you know. Do you know who Edwards Air Force Base is named after? Edwards. Carl Edwards Senior. Ah, yeah, I think maybe not. Could be. Point sure. They would have renamed it after Junior if he'd gotten one more out in, <laughs> right. in Game Seven. Mike Montgomery had to come in and that changed all that. It, it seems odd that a movie that is sold as though it's about the the original seven Mercury astronauts spend so much time on a guy who was not one of the astronauts. The first, I don't know, half hour, 45 minutes of the movie is basically about Chuck Yeager. Mm-hmm. Um, and the original screenplay, so Tom Wolfe wrote the book. He did, um, he had done a story about um, the Mercury seven astronauts for Rolling Stone 
thought it was interesting, turned it into a series, and then later took a leave of absence to flesh it out and write, and write a book about it. And then um, that was in, I think the book came out in like 79. So not long after that, they decided, ooh, this would make a good movie. And um, so I asked, I asked you before we went on if you knew who wrote the original screenplay, and you said no. But I gave you the hint that it's one of like three screenwriters in the world that people know. So do you have a guess as to who wrote the first one? Francis Ford Coppola. Hmm. <laughs> that would have been nine hours long. Um, right. William I Goldman. do not know. William Goldman, okay. William Goldman wrote it. And um, Chuck Yeager does not appear. He's a big part of the book. Goldman decided mm-hmm. this movie's about astronauts. We're going to make the movie about the astronauts. And um, it bounced around... Um, Erwin Winkler um, was going to make it at one point. Um, him and Robert Chartoff bought the uh, movie rights for three hundred fifty thousand dollars in nineteen seventy nine. They're the ones that hired Goldman to write the screenplay. Um, he focused entirely on the astronauts, um, and he took it because he wanted to say something patriotic about America in the wake of the Iran hostage crisis. Um, Winkler was disappointed that Jaeger wasn't in it. Uh, United Artists agreed to finance the movie up to $20 million. And the first director attached to it was Michael Ritchie. Um, that didn't work out. So then John Avelsden, uh, the Rocky director, mm-hmm. um, he signed on. And he brought... Well, I don't know. It doesn't say whether or not. But he would have been reunited, not only with those producers, but also Bill Conti did the music for the right stuff. And he, of course, did the iconic Rocky theme. Right. Um, so Avelson falls through, and then they go to Philip Kaufman. And he agreed to make the movie, but he didn't want to use Goldman's script. So he tossed it out. And he, re- he wrote a new script. Um, I noticed Goldman's name isn't on the script, isn't on the writing credits at all. So does that mean that he literally, like he couldn't have used any of it, right? Because once a script is kind of floating out there, if somebody takes parts of it, that person becomes like, have to, has to be one of the credited writers. Well, he should have been if he contributed as a writer, but yeah, the only ones it's that are credited are Kaufman and Tom Wolf. Yep. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, he yeah, I don't, know what, I don't know what would have happened there. Yeah. He just tossed it. You know, up so much, this is kind of like a little history or instruction of how hard it is to get movies made. Cause you're talking 1979 to 1980 is when they start the process. Yeah. And it's not until 1983 that it actually comes out. It's very, very hard to get, get a, get a movie made. And all those types of types of things you just outlined are exactly what happens. They got to rewrite the script. Some uh, the project goes from one guy to another. Another director takes over. Everything falls apart. We start again. Another studio wants it. This studio doesn't. So, uh, really, getting any movie of this type of scale made is sort of a, a minor miracle. Yeah. So Kaufman went to Wolf and asked if he wanted to help him write the script, and Wolf said no. Um. 
So Kaufman wrote the script in eight weeks. So they're all ready to go, right? Well, <laughs> not so much. Uh, United Artists had produced a little movie uh, that year uh, called Heaven's Gate, which was such a bomb um, that they, they put a bunch of movies into turnaround, including the right stuff. So Universal stepped in with $17 million and said, all right, make the damn movie. So they finally were able to start shooting it. Um, part of the reason that Kaufman put Jaeger back in, although it sounds like he had kind of, from reading the book he'd planned out anyway, was he hired Chuck to be a consultant and interviewed him a few times as he was writing the script. And so not only did he put Jaeger back in, he made him even a bigger character than he had originally thought he was going to because he felt like there is no space program without Chuck Jaeger. The stuff Jaeger did is what made the other stuff, and you know, it's a little bit of exaggeration, but not much, I don't think. Um, and then he wanted Jaeger around the set so much to the point that the guy who plays the doddering bartender slash waiter at Pancho's Happy Bottom Writing Club, uh, the guy who serves uh, Scott Crossfield his steak when Scott uh, breaks the um, is the first man to go Mach two is the real Chuck Yeager. He's the one that Harry, Harry Shearer asks him for a Coke, right? Yeah. In a, in a, in a clean glass. Yes. And then he goes, you guys want to drink some whiskey? <laughs> like that's Chuck's one line is you guys want to drink yeah. some whiskey? Yes. <laughs> Harry, no. Harry wants Coke and a clean glass. In a, in a clean glass. It's, it's uh, one of the odd things actually about the movie is that there's not, there's really not the movie does not make a strong parallel. I don't think between why is why is Jaeger here and his connection to the space program. I mean, we get that he's the guy that they all wanted to recruit, but really the only direct link comes from Gordo and Gus and Deke Slayton, who were at Edwards as test pilots, and because they were so far down the totem pole to guys like Jaeger. They're like, well, we have no opportunity here. We might as well go become astronauts. Yeah, yeah. And that's like the only kind of direct tie-in. But you don't really see – it's very subtle, otherwise, the, the connection between Jaeger and the space program, which I always thought was kind of interesting. Um, there's that one there, – there's always seemingly – the regret seems to kind of build in Jaeger a little bit, although never outwardly because Jaeger would never show that, right? The character of Jaeger at least. It builds throughout the movie to to at the end, which you know is when he tries to take a plane and turn it into a spaceship on on himself, which yeah. by himself, which we'll talk about later, I'm sure. But um, up until that point, there, there's just kind of a there's kind of a arrogance from the Edwards pilots right towards the space program. You know, they're making fun of him because the first first man in space was a monkey. Yep. And they're just spamming a can. But at one point, it was, I always kind of thought it was a sweet moment, interesting moment. It was after Gus. After Gus Grissom goes down, loses his capsule. It's the same thing where you see all the Edwards pilots kind of, you know, yucking it up and having a laugh. And Jaeger jumps in to defend Gus. Right now, the president's got his own problems with the Bay of Pigs. He doesn't want the astronaut's image tarnished. Nothing these guys do is going to be called a failure. These astronauts are our Davids. But you think the public would know they're just doing what monkeys have done? Monkeys? You think a monkey knows he's sitting on top of a rocket that might explode? These astronaut boys, they know that, see? I'll tell you something. 
takes a special kind of man to volunteer for a suicide mission, especially when it's on TV. Oh, Gus, he did all right. And I think that was, that's maybe, you know, the one, maybe that's where it started to turn for him. Yeah. And you could tell that kind of shocks the other guys in the room, right? They're like, oh. But yeah, and the only, well, you know, I'm sure it's overly simplified, but um, apparently the reason Jaeger wasn't considered was he didn't go to college. Mm-hmm. You know, he had, oh, you know, poor guy actually went and, you know, flew planes in a war and learned how to fly <laughs> that way. Right. Um, but, you know, they said he didn't fit the, he doesn't fit the profile. He didn't and fit the like, profile. And they're like, Jaeger doesn't fit the profile? <laughs> Um, so you're saying you don't want the best pilots? No, I didn't say that. We want the best pilots that we can get. Yeah. And go, you know, Goldblum and Harry Shearer, the two twins, essentially. Our whole comedy team, their whole little comedy duo themselves, duo themselves throughout this whole movie, which is another great touch. Yeah. Um. So when Jaeger goes up, and um. The, the, they don't explain this. You figure it out on repeated viewing. Because what they'll do is they'll like zoom in on the... He's flying the plane like a bat out of hell, and they keep showing a gauge. And it takes you a while to figure out what is the significance of the gauge. Like, what the hell is he supposed to do? Like, at the end, they're showing the altimeter because a Russian had gone up to 114,000 feet, and he's decided he wants to break that record. Well, at the beginning, nobody has ever gone to Mach 1, and so you look at the gauge, and it takes you, you know, 30 seconds to figure out that if he gets to one on the gauge, that's actually going to be um, Mach 1. So he goes up, and um, they're all kind of – there are people on the ground kind of, you know, milling around. Um, they hear this huge boom, and they all think his plane has exploded. Either he's crashed or he's exploded. Um, and then they don't know it until all of a sudden – they hear him on the uh, thing go. They really make another note here, would you? Must be something wrong with this old Mach meter. Jump plumb off the scale. Gone kind of screwy on me. You go ahead and bust it. We'll fix it. Personally, I think you're seeing things. One thing I've always wondered, though, is did we they they called it the sound barrier? Even if you didn't have a guy in a plane, we'd never shot something. We'd never shot like a missile or something and heard a sonic boom and figured out that that's what it was. Like in the movie, they're completely surprised. But then when I read like the history of it, it was the same thing. When they heard the boom, they thought he exploded. How did they know to call it the sound barrier if they didn't know that there was going to be a sonic boom? Uh, I mean, I guess who would have heard one at that point, though? Like Werner von Braum? I mean, who else? Yeah. <laughs> He's probably the only guy that would have actually heard a, a sonic boom before. But, it, but you know, that's that, going back to the thing about those about Ike and Johnson being in the, the conference room, the primitive conference room, that sort of thing, too. Oh, they're shocked. They're not, of course, they, nobody's ever heard a sonic boom before. Yeah. And you do, and they, the, the movie does a great job of you know, kind of toying with the audience a little bit, like, did Jaeger just blow yeah, up? right. And then, yeah, as you say, coming out of it perfectly just on the radio call is, is a great way to exit out of that little moment. So after that happens, then we start to actually meet guys who are going to be astronauts. And the first two that we meet are um, 
are Gus Grissom and Gordo Cooper. My two favorite astronauts. Um, and they just happen to be at Pancho's Happy Bottom Riding Club. Um, which is... Um, would have been true because they would have been at Edwards flying. Although we find out in the book and then you find out if uh, I've only watched the first of the Disney, I guess it's national geographic show, the right stuff that's on now that you yeah. you've been watching. Yeah, it's good. Um, not only was Gus not there when they came in looking for astronauts, but Gus got sent to the Lovelace clinic or whatever it was in New Mexico, not knowing what he was going for. Right. He shows up and doesn't know what his orders, he doesn't know why he's going there until he gets there. And they all, I forget what name it was. They've all been, they all have to check in under the same name. Right, right. Um, there's, actually, we do see Gordo earlier when he and Trudy are driving down the strip in the desert. Yeah. Come on, Trudy. Who's the best pilot you ever saw? Huh? Who's the best pilot you ever saw? <laughs> you're looking at it baby yes. and it's such a what's well, a great we really we get to understand their relationship pretty pretty quickly and how there's <laughs> there's going to be some some trouble but i think one of the one of my favorite things is when they're going you know he's going to they're going to edwards you know and he tells we're a team this is you know mm-hmm. this is great for for his career and they get to these they get to the housing, the military housing that's there. And it's just the biggest piece of shit shack, literally in the middle of the desert. But the thing that's so great is as Trudy is walking around just horrified by what she's seeing, the rust-colored water, you know, the yeah. water. She goes into the into the living room and you just see Gordo passed out on the couch with his face basically <laughs> on the seat cushion and his feet hanging over the the ledge. That little moment tells you so much about Gordo. And it's a really genius moment that I'll get, yeah, I assume it was Dennis Quaid who came up with it. Because I guarantee the script said, Gordo goes to the couch and falls asleep. Yeah, yeah. But to be you know, prone, face down, legs up, yeah. <laughs> That tells you so, and that that's like that's what a choice that an actor can bring to a to a role, a little moment, a little something like that, because that just tells you so much. Yeah. You know, he's he's passed out asleep in that position, and, and I, she's horrified. I think in that scene, what makes her run into the living room is she hears she hears a crash. She hears a and she yells Gordo and like runs through the house and she sees him face down with his legs up and looks out the window and her two little girls are standing in the backyard looking and there's a there's a fire you know there's smoke in the distance and the one little girl has a toy plane and is like mimicking it crashing into the grass she's like <laughs> this right. is their life yeah right well on the yeah on the, on the trip on the way down is the first time we hear him go uh you know come on Trudy who's the best pilot you ever saw Who's the best pilot you ever saw? And of course, you're, you're looking at him. Yeah, you're looking at him. And then, <laughs> um, but then he says something that he gets to say again later too, which is right before you see the shitty housing, is when he says, uh, "Come on, cheer up. When have I ever let you down? <laughs> like, oh well. <laughs> have I ever let you down before? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so they get there, and then he goes to uh, he goes to Pancho's, and he runs into. Uh, Gus, who they know each other. 
And uh, they're both acting all cocky. And so Pancho comes over and asks Pancho, who is one of my favorite characters in movie history, this snarling, you know, lady who has seen everything four times. Right. What are you two rookies going to have? Rookies? Now, hold on, sis. You are looking at a whole new ball game here now. In fact, in a couple of years, I bet you're even going to immortalize us by putting our pictures up there on your wall. Would I say something wrong here? I tell you, we got two categories of pilots around here. We got your prime pilots that get all the hot planes, and we got your pud knockers who dream about getting the hot planes. Now, what are you two pud knockers going to have, huh? Scotch. She goes, what do you two rookies have? Gordon goes, rookies? Hold on, sis. You're looking at a whole new ball game here now. In fact, in a couple of years, I'll bet you're even going to immortalize us by putting our pictures up there on your wall. And then he what pauses. I, what, I, yeah. what, I, what I say something wrong here? <laughs> because we had learned in the scene before um, that the, the pictures only go up when the pilot is dead. So she doesn't bother to tell him, but she, her response to him is, well, I'll tell you, we got two categories of pilots around here. We got your prime pilots that get all the hot planes, and we got your pud knockers who dream about getting the hot planes. Now, what are you two pud knockers gonna have, eh? And Gordo goes, "Scotch," which is also which is a great, great line. which is a great response. <laughs> yeah, uh, Gordo and Gus in the movie are buddies. You know, they're they're clearly clearly best, but interesting in the TV show. They are not. Yeah. They are at each other's throats, which is kind of interesting. Uh, I, that that, uh, that has always been portrayed as the reality that they didn't. Yeah. I think people people like Gordo was an ass. Um, they all respected him, which is another. We'll get to that later because the astronauts who have a problem with this movie has a huge problem with the way they portray Gus. Um. They respected Gus, but they, he was always a pain in the ass. What they liked about him was he was never afraid to go up the command and complain about whatever. So they could always count on Gus going and bitching for them. Um, and then Gordo was – everybody liked him because he was fun and he was funny. But he, because of that, he didn't get a lot of respect. You know, and he was obviously he was you know they they were all good pilots. They wouldn't have been chosen if they weren't. Mm-hmm. But um, they there's there's other books where they the the other astronauts seriously doubt how committed Gordo is to any of this. You know he and there's a scene late when they're in the Astrodome after um, LBJ has gotten uh, Johnson Space Center named after him and opened, um, where Gordo talks about. You know, funny. But here I am. I got me 25 grand a year for a magazine contract. Got a free house with all the furnishings. Got me a Corvette. Got uh, free lunch from one end of America to the other. And I ain't even been up there yet. Yeah. I noticed that. Oh, you noticed that, huh? You noticed I hadn't been up there yet? 
Well, I guess they're saving the best for last. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so, hot dog. I guess so. Oh, you know, I got a job that pays, what was it, $25,000 a year or whatever. It was super big money. And, you know, yeah, yeah, right. um, I got a magazine contract. I got a Corvette. Right. I got whatever. And I haven't even been in the damn space yet. Um, <laughs> and there were a lot of, some of the other astronauts weren't sure that that really bothered him. Yeah. Um, and Gus goes, yeah, I noticed that. Yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> oh, you noticed that? You noticed I haven't been up there yet? So the the Tom Wolf book is a lot about, it's not 50-50, it's probably 30-70. 30% of the book is about the wives um, and how they had to deal with it and the weird, the, the weird expectations that the space program had for them. Um, you know, they didn't, didn't think there was any reason they needed to have a job. Their job was basically to look pretty and be polite and be ambassadors for whatever. Meanwhile, they're dealing with the fact that their husbands have these super dangerous jobs and most of them are cheating on them and they know it and there's all this other stuff. And so in the movie, they kind of introduce it in one scene where um, it's, uh, it's got to be Gus Gordo and Deke Slayton are outside barbecuing on this awful little, like one of those, it's like one of those weird square barbecues that you like get at the forest preserve, you know, where it's like like permanently like cemented into the ground. I think in, I think in Tomahawk, Wisconsin in 1972 (laughs) with the the lake house, my parents rented, they had that grill. (laughs) So Trudy has a little monologue and Trudy is played by uh, Pamela Reed, who uh, most people probably know her best as Leslie Nope's mom. Uh, on Parks and Recreation. <laughs> I went back east to a reunion, and all my friends could talk about was their husband's work, how dog-eat-dog and cutthroat it was on Madison Avenue. Places like that. <laughs> cutthroat. I wondered how they would have felt if each time their husband went in to make a deal there was a one in four chance he wouldn't come out of that meeting. I'm going home to my folks in San Diego. What did Gordo say? He maintained an even strain. And so they all commiserate about that, and they look out the window, and Trudy goes, um... Look at him out there. You'd think they were talking about sports because a plane flies over and the three of them are way too enthusiastic and talking about what the plane is and who's flying it and all this stuff. And they get all fired up. And uh, Betty Grissom goes, sometimes they're just such assholes. And then the women all like titter. Like she she said the word asshole. Like that was the dirtiest thing they'd ever heard. And um, Gordo, they're all looking out the window. (laughs) Gordo holds up. He's got on his He's got a hot dog that is completely engulfed in flames. <laughs> and he just holds it up and he goes, Honey, you want a hot dog? And Trudy goes under her breath. Because she's already told the women this. She's, I'm leaving, Gordo. And she does. In real life, she bolts, which becomes a big deal later when he tries to become an astronaut that his wife is not around. Yeah, then we get the famous um, back in Pancho's. Um, the. I don't even know who this guy is. There's a couple of characters in the movie who they never, you're just supposed to, I guess, impart upon them who you think like, they are. 
Like the the Grim Reaper guy? Is that who you're Well, there's that guy, too. He's amazing. But, um, he's awesome. <laughs> yeah. There's a guy who... Maybe he's press. I don't know. He's the guy who, when, when Jaeger breaks the sound barrier, runs to the phone in the hangar to call it in. Oh, yeah. And one of the Air Force guys goes over and literally hangs, reaches over and hangs up the phone and tells him that he can't. He has the thing about, um, we have, there are certain people we don't want to know about this. He's like, like who? Like the Russians. The Russians, they're our allies. <laughs> Which is so great because, you know, because it's such clever writing because that sounded obviously so different to a 1983 yeah. audience in particular. Um, that's just one of those things that really it just it just makes you laugh how clever it is. Yeah. Yeah. So later. Yeah, he- that guy. Is, yeah, must have been lo- uh, local. Yeah, because he because he is with that same guy, that same character is with Jaeger and Ridley when they're. When Jaeger defends Gus, he's yeah. in the room with them. So, yeah, yeah, but you're right. We don't exactly know what he is, who he is. So they go back to Pancho's, and it's he's sitting at the table with Gordo and Gus, and he's the one who goes um, – there must be a third guy sitting there with him because he goes – no, I, Ridley's there too, I think, because he goes, you know what makes rocket ships go up? And Ridley starts to go, wow, the aerodynamics alone, he starts to explain, it's like uh, funding. No Bucks, no Buck Rogers, which the astronauts then use um, later during a revolt when, they, yes. uh, when, the, when they're basically told that their capsule is not going to have a window in it. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep. Yeah, and Gordo, I think, brings up that line because Gordo, Gordo heard that at Edwards, and I think he's yeah. – funding makes his bird go up. Yeah. No Bucks, no Buck Rogers. Right. Um, so, yeah, so then um, uh, Scott Crossfield goes to Mach 2, so Jaeger's got to go up to top it, and it's the flight where um, it starts to buffet wildly, and he smashes into the canopy and knocks himself unconscious and loses contact for a while, and then he um, finally regains control of it, gets back on the radio and tells <laughs> Ridley, uh, I think I must have busted the canopy with my head. I don't know. I'm doing okay now. Well, we should chase that old demon this time, huh, Jack? <laughs> That's as fast as a man can go, partner. What's next, Ridley? Which is a nice setup then for Jeff Goldblum sprinting down the hallway into this darkened conference room. Right. And um, he throws the door open and he yells, it's called Sputnik. And they're like, we, <laughs> we know. Yeah. Sit down. <laughs> Yeah, so Goldblum and Harry Shearer play these two nameless, uh, I don't even know what they are. They're, I don't know who they work for, the government. There is no NASA yet, so they don't work for NASA. Their function is to recruit astronauts. Yes. Somehow that became their function, these two guys. And so one of the funniest things in the movie is that's the scene. He gets in the conference room and they can't find the plug. And, you know, the the president of the United States is helping stick his head under the table trying to find the plug. They plug it in. And the video they show is the most ridiculous thing ever. It's it's very dryly narrated by those two. And it's about the people they're they're considering for the space program. And they show, like, trapeze artists and and just all kinds of contortionists, all kinds of weird stuff. And so you think it's just there for laughs, but that's literally who they were thinking about. Because yeah. the the so the after the after World War II ended, um, the Americans got a hold of 
uh, a bunch of German scientists, and the Russians got a hold of a bunch of German scientists. And there was a whole argument about whose Germans were better. And they started to work on these concepts. And Werner von Braun and his Germans never thought of um, well, they were, first, they were very hesitant that you would ever need to actually put a person in any of the damn space stuff. Anyway, they're just going to screw it up. You know, the the one variable you can't control is the human, so we don't need the human in it. But then they were basically they came to it, but they never thought of them as a pilot ever. So well, there's whole- a great little great little illustrating that between Johnson and von Braun. You know, when when uh, he's asked, well, who's going to pilot this? Von Braun goes, well. I was thinking uh, of a gym. <laughs> and John's going, a gym. A gym? What the hell is a gym? Great place. We could have orbited a satellite a year ago if we had been given the green light. Now we must get something up there quick and dirty any way at all. Well, what? By combining our available rockets, the Redstone, the Atlas. I agree with those who say that we could launch a pod. A pod? A pod. Absolutely. Now, we will be in full control of this pod. It will go up like a cannonball and come down like uh, a cannonball, uh, splashing down in the water of the ocean with a parachute to spare the life of the spacemen inside. Spacemen? Specimen. Well, what kind of specimen? A tough one. Responsive to orders. I had in mind a jimp. Jimp? Well, what the hell is a jimp? A jimp, a chimpanzee, Senator, an ape. Huh? The first American into space is not going to be a chimpanzee. Yeah, the whole... Chimpanzee, th- Senator. Yeah, I wrote that down. It goes, um, he goes, we could launch a pod. And LBJ goes, a pot? A pod. A pod. With a parachute a to spare the life of this specimen inside. Spaceman? Specimen. So you go, specimen. What kind of specimen? I had in mind a jimp. A jimp? A jimp. Jimpanzee. And to which Johnson's Johnson's reply is, the first man in space is not going to be a chimpanzee. (laughs) And then Ike, the one line Ike gets is, I want test pilots. <laughs> Werner is horrified. We could do better with another kind of man. Any other kind of man. And by the way, Ike, Ike isn't even seated at the table. <laughs> <laughs> he's like in the he's like, he's put him at the kids' table. He's like not even at the main table. He has to lean in on a folding chair <laughs> to tell me what's there's a there's a great when you're talking about the two guys going through like the you know the the trapeze artists and all that. The, there's a great it's I. I Throw, I don't want to call it a throwaway line, but there's a great line where there's Harry Shearer is particularly excited about this one guy. And I think he, I think he was a trapeze artist and he's talking about how great he, you know, he's got, you know, he's good with heights. He's good with this. <laughs> and, and he is available as of the 15th. <laughs> In the movie. Yeah. So then they go to, um, they send Goldblum and Shearer to go find, they got to go find test pilots now. Thanks to Ike. And that's when they they show up and they get out of their car. Oh, there's another great scene is they get out of the car, they're talking and they're putting their jackets on. 
<laughs> and you immediately notice that Harry Shearer's jacket looks like he's wearing a bathrobe. And then you look over, and Goldblum can barely get his arms in his, and they have each other's jackets. And so they switch. And without even stop, they don't stop the conversation they're having. They just switch jackets. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when um, Goldblum asks, it's called Pancho's Happy Bottom Riding Club? How to get a name like that? And Shearer goes, ask Pancho. Ask Pancho. And then, so my brother and I, ever since I was a kid, we'd be watching a movie. We always had a contest to find the spot in the movie where they say the name of the movie. And then to win, you had to yell, hence the name of the movie. That was part of it. So okay. the hence the name of the movie part of this is, is during that conversation. And Harry Shearer is one who gets to say it. He goes, the best test pilots, they've got some kind of brotherhood. They keep thinking they've got the right stuff. And then Goldblum asks him what the right stuff is, and nobody has any idea what it is. But, so that's the name. It's always disappointing for us when there's a movie and they don't actually say, you know, Star Wars. It's a huge disappointment as a kid. <laughs> At no point does anyone say Star Wars in the movie. Right. Um, yeah, another good thing then. So they're in, they're in uh, Pancho's and Gus and Gordo were talking. Get back to what you said. They've basically decided they've gone as high as they can get at Edwards because as long as Jaeger and Scott Crossfield are there, they're never going to get they never get to fly the best planes. They're never going to get any of that stuff. And so, ironically, they decide to become astronauts because they can't become the best test pilot because mm-hmm. there's better ones in their way. But uh, right. Gus goes, what the hell does astronaut mean anyway? And Gordo goes, star voyager. And Gus goes, star voyager, Gus Grissom. I like the sound of that. Yeah. And we know that conversation never actually happened because uh, – Gus wasn't there because when that, when they actually got to inviting people to come be astronauts, like we said, he was somewhere else and they brought him in unaware to himself. Right. Right. So then they go to the, this clinic in New Mexico (laughs) where there's a lot of great stuff at the clinic. Um, It's apparently, I don't know, is it a nursing home or what was it? Yeah. But there's, there's that great thing about, um, they're talking about something. One of the other astronauts shushes them. Mm-hmm. Let's mm-hmm. talk about this. And it's like, right. why? Said, well, there could be spies. And they look around and there's just a bunch of old guys with walkers. He's like, you know. <laughs> yeah. He goes, he goes, like, who? like Russians. <laughs> they don't look very Russian to me, guys. <laughs> Great line from Gordo. And that is the one and only time in that scene when they're in the waiting room at this Lovelace clinic. Where we where Wally Shira has his one line in the entire movie. <laughs> now I was, you know, thinking as an actor. Now if now the, the actor's name is, is Lance Henriksen, who had a set a fantastic career. But at the time, if he must have been he must have been so excited to get that part. He must have been like, honey, and to all his family and friends, honey, I just got cast. They're making this, you know, you've heard about this movie where they're making it about the space program, the Mercury 7 astronauts. I'm one of the Mercury 7 astronauts. <laughs> this is going to be the biggest thing of my entire career. He must have been so excited. And w- and he has one line in the whole movie. And he's basically a complete non-character. Yeah. So that, which, <laughs> which I, I wonder what, I wonder what he thought. Um <laughs> 
I mean, I, I want love to hear what he thought about that. He act, he and I actually, Lance Henriksen and I actually share a we share a a credit. We share a title. Oh, we were both on not at the same time, but we were both on the show Better Things. Oh, there you go, with Pamela Adlon. Andy, if you were to ask me, go ahead and ask me who's who's the coolest person in Hollywood. Who's the coolest person in Hollywood, Mike? Andy, that would be Pamela Adlon. Yeah, she seems she like is, she is the absolute coolest person here she's awesome in every way love her to death that's great so there's a plug for better things everybody go watch better things but yeah but he just must have been uh he must just must have been on such a high getting that part and then and who knows they might have filmed a bunch of stuff do you think there's like do you think hbo now will come out with the hendrickson cut (laughs) of the right stuff and it's like all wally shira for an hour (laughs) right it's like it's a seven hour movie because as a kid i knew wally shira was an astronaut for one reason do you remember this he did a commercial for some kind of cold reliever because when he did his flight he had a head cold is it really possible to suffer cold symptoms in space you bet it is. It happened on Apollo 7, and it could happen on the new space shuttle, too. That's why all manned U.S. space flights carry Actifed. Even in space, Actifed relieves a stuffy nose and sinuses, runny nose and sneezing. And he took whatever this was. And so the whole ad campaign was about if it's safe enough for an astronaut in space, and it works well enough for an astronaut in space, it must be the greatest cold medicine in the world. It's oh, the only reason I know who, that I knew who Wally Sharab was. Damn, and I and 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 I I assume like you first got introduced to Chuck Yeager when he was doing those uh, was AC Delco commercials. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and my uh, so my sister, her boyfriend, um, through through college, um, his dad flew for American Airlines, and he's a, he's he's a airline mechanic, the ex boyfriend, um, and he had a. Um, him and his dad had a Cessna and he was reading the, I remember him reading the Chuck Yeager book. And um, so I was probably like, it's about this time would have been like um, 84, 85, something like that. I go up in the plane with Spence and his friend Kim and I'm sitting in the, it's, you know, it's Cessna's basically when you're in the, the cab of Cessna, it's like being in a car. Mm-hmm. And we're flying, we're flying around here, the little northern Illinois, flying above little towns. And we, we went over our farm, and we buzzed the farm. He flew down just above the roof level of the house, which pissed my sister off, but we thought uh-huh. it was cool. And we're flying around, and um, Spence says to me, he goes, hey, do you want to fly it for a little bit? And I'm like, yeah. And so I'm thinking, where are we going to land so we can switch? Well, Kim is like, as Kim's a guy, he's like 6'2", 190 pounds. And so picture this, like just you're driving around in a car and the guy in the passenger seat gets, climbs into the back seat and then (laughs) you climb into the front seat because that's exactly what we did while we were flying. Kim (laughs) is just like throwing himself over the thing. So then I get to sit um, in the seat. Well, it's not, it's not like a, you know, a training plane. There's not a, they don't have instruments on the other, they don't have a yoke or whatever on the other side. Right, right. So Spencer's like, wait a second. He's like, we got to get this leveled off. <laughs> and he's like, okay, come here. And he grabs me. And as he's sliding to his right, he's sliding me to his left. And I'm 12. <laughs> it's not like I'm four. I mean, I'm, you know, right. and he slides me over. And then I got to fly the plane for like 15 minutes. 
He had wow. me like, you know, it's like, let's go up a little bit. Let's go down a little bit. I got to bank a little bit and then he could reach over and like fix it. Um, but when I think of Chuck Yeager, I was thinking of Spence because he was reading that book. And the only time I ever got to fly a plane in my life, I've given my sister shit because I know for a fact that had they not broken up, I would have a pilot's license. Oh, <laughs> so she cost me. You know, nice. that. Damn. Yes. Cause I'm sure I would have stuck with it and Spence would have helped me out and, um, I would have flown a plane. Oh man. And my best friend from when I was a kid, um, he is a private pilot. Okay. His Facebook page is annoying because he flies, um, it's whatever company he works for now. It was NetJets for a while, not whatever it is now. Um, rich people hire him to fly them from place to place. So, um, Luke will one day look over and it's like, oh, Lucas, take a picture from Mallorca today because that's where he is. Or, oh, he went to the, he flew to the south of France or wherever. It's, he doesn't fly to like Cleveland or Pittsburgh. Right. You know, he's, right. yeah, nobody pays him to go there. <laughs> okay, so then they go to the clinic and that's where um, they set it up where um, Alan Shepard, we first meet him. He's landing a plane on an aircraft carrier. Mm-hmm. And, um, when they, they go to the, whoever in the tower is, you know, checks in with him. And he goes, my name is Jose Jimenez. And I just love the, whatever actor read the, oh, that's right, it's Shepard. In other words, <laughs> oh, yes, funny guy always does this. Um, yeah, right. And, oh, there's a great scene then with um, Jeff Goldblum and Harry Shearer both that's barfing over the side of the aircraft carrier. Goldblum right. actually turns to talk to him and it has barf all over the side of his face. Right. <laughs> and, and as they're barfing, they're finishing each other's sentences. It's such a great touch. <laughs> so then Shepard goes to the clinic and then we get to see a little bit of the, you know, think about it. They, no one had ever been in space before. And they really didn't know what kind of tests to run. So they were right. just throwing anything out there. And one of them, they stick the syringe or needle into his hand and then like shoot electric current up his arm. So while he's, he literally has to like hold his arm because it's gone limp and carry it back. He's sitting in like the waiting room. That's when they have, that's when Wally gets his line and we right. hear, you know, that's Gus and Deke and Gordo are like, all right, who are we going to the other four? Cause we're already in all that shit. Um, and, he does, Alan does his Jose Jimenez uh, impersonation. And he's like, you know, oh, the, the Navy or the Air Force boys, they go in this door, they all look the same. They come back in, they look different. <clears throat> and then there's this enormous Hispanic orderly <laughs> who just happens to be Hall of Fame football player Anthony Munoz. <laughs> which is great. <laughs> and the best part, which I always forget, <clears throat> Anthony has some lines, but we don't ever get to hear Anthony. It is the most obviously dubbed stuff. And the lines yeah. are so simple. It's like, how yeah. bad did he screw them up? <laughs> uh, yes, but he, uh, he basically lets Alan know that uh, they don't think his impersonation is quite as funny as he does. Right, right. Which culminates yep. in the scene where Alan gets the enema. Yes. And the doctor says... Um, uh, yeah. When that clip is released, the balloon inside of you deflates. And uh, it's like, deflates? Where's the John? Two floors up. 
So who's the guy who's going to take the waddling Alan Shepard and the other f- nameless, faceless uh, astronaut candidate? Up? Yeah. Anthony Munoz. They have to get on the elevator with a, with a bunch <laughs> of regular so people. Great. Yeah. And it's just, it's mere foreshadowing to another more famous time when Alan is trying not to explode uh, in the movie. Right. And there's a great, as he's running down the, the gaunt, running the gauntlet of the hallway, he passes by uh, Gordo, among others. Another great little little moment. Gordo stands straight up while, while Shepard's trying not to let everything go on the floor. He goes, good day, Commander, sir. <laughs> then we kind of just, all of a sudden, jump ahead to the seven have been picked. <clears throat> and the other... He's <clears throat> nameless character is the the guy who announce, who introduces them very dramatically. They have this huge press oh, event. Yeah. I don't know where it is, but he does this thing where he yells everything. And I always think I always make this weird equivalence of one line that he does, which is he goes, "It is my pleasure to introduce to you seven Americans, gentlemen all." Yeah, and always, gentlemen all. And it reminds me of in um, history of the world. When uh, Mel Brooks is Moses, yeah. and he stands there and he goes, "I give you these fifteen, and he drops one of the tablets, <laughs> and he goes, "These ten, ten commandments." I always think for some reason the the reading is exactly the same between the two guys. Right, right, right. He channeled Mel Brooks energy for that. <laughs> that a guy you're talking about is also in. Uh, he's in Hoffa. He has, I can't even remember anything else he's been in, but he has a kind of a similar role, role if I remember, in the movie Hoffa. Yeah, so he's, he, and I had to look at the credits to see who his character was. Yeah. So his, the, the actor's name is John P. Ryan. There you go. The character he plays is head of program. <laughs> right. <laughs> head of program. So basically. I'm running this thing. Yeah, and you don't it's, even realize, it's, you, you get the feeling he's just like the, like the publicity guy. Until yeah. later, when he threatens um, during this whole Glenn. thing with yeah. John Glenn and LBJ, he basically threatens to pull Glenn off the flight unless, unless Glenn's wife will go out and, and meet the president. Right. And then all the yeah. other astronauts basically say, well, who are you going to get to fly it then? And that's <laughs> like, oh, he goes, I'm the one picking the assignment. He's like, you are? I thought you were just like the, the PR guy. Yeah, right. Exactly. He plays. Yeah, remember he plays in Hoffa. Red Bennett. Did you see Hoffa? I have, but a long time. Ago. A long time ago. Okay, it's worth rewatching just for just for just for that. Yeah, as a another thing I used to say as a kid. Uh, thanks to Gus Grissom. A uh, fucking a Bubba. No idea <laughs> what it means. Then there's the great scene where the uh, the astronauts and their wives go to meet the head of Life magazine. These are the greatest. Pilots in America. How much do they make? Seven, eight thousand dollars a year? Mm. At the most, Mr. Lewis. With this one deal, I'm giving them five hundred thousand dollars split seven ways over three years. How's that sound? Well, now I want them all to meet my people who will write their true stories. Naturally, these stories will appear in Life magazine under their own bylines. For example, by Betty Grissom, or by Virgil I. Grissom, or Gus. 
What was that? Gus. Nobody calls me by that other name. Gus? An astronaut named Gus? What's your middle name? Ivan. Ivan. <clears throat> well, maybe Gus isn't so bad. Might be something there. All right. All right. You can be Gus. Whoever he is. <laughs> and he's explained to them. First, he asks what they make. And it's nothing. He goes, well, we're going to give them, what is it, like $250,000 split eight ways over three years. And Something like, like that, yeah. Like, okay, that's not, that's not adding up to that much. But anyway. Right. So he's explained to them. He's like, these, <clears throat> these articles will appear in Life Magazine under their own bylines. For example, by Betty Grissom. Or by Virgil I. Grissom. Or, and Gus goes, Gus. Gus. What was that? Gus. Nobody calls me by that other name. Gus? What's your middle name? An astronaut <laughs> named either. Gus? What's your middle name? Ivan. Ivan? Well, maybe Gus isn't so bad. Might be something there. All right, all right. You can be Gus. <laughs> Tells him he can, can be, be his Gus. own name. <laughs> then there's the, um, they have that great, Monta- this movie has great montages and one of the great montages is so I got all the astronauts are all excited and they go out to the launch pad to see their rocket go up for the first time <laughs> doesn't even make it doesn't go an inch off the ground just explodes it and doesn't then there, go well and then there's a whole there's just disaster after disaster and they keep showing them and they look more and more discouraged and it's funny how they do it <clears throat> they're probably for the ease of filming but at the beginning they're all in suits and ties Mm-hmm. And then they show them later, you know, supposedly, yeah, obviously months later, and now the suit coats are gone. And then by the end of it, they're like in Hawaiian shirts. It's <laughs> like, oh shit, we're never going to go up. Right. And the last one, you know, you see the rocket, and we've seen all these huge explosions, and all you hear is this little boop, and just the capsule pops off the top of it. Right. It's so great. And then we go right into uh, La Bamba, I believe. Yes. Now they're at Cocoa Beach, a great yeah. use of La Bamba. And I want to drink in a bar where you can see the pool from the bar. Because yeah. that's uh, – and there's even one later where they're, where they're at that same bar. And Deke is swimming, and there's the girls, like, hanging off of him. And he's in shorts with a belt. <laughs> it's like he just got in the pool, whatever the hell he had on. Right. That's, All right. That's so it. one of the – I told you there's three questions I want to ask you. One of them is this. Yeah. So in that okay. scene um, – so um, – Scott Carpenter and John Glenn are sitting at a table. Mm. And then um, I don't, is it, is it all three? Is it Deke, Gordo, and Gus? They're at the bar. They turn around mm-hmm. and these two women all dolled up come walking in in slow motion. And the guys at the bar are all like, ooh. And, right. and John and Scott Carpenter are not paying any attention to them. And as they walk by the bar, the one woman says to the other one, Four down, three to go. <laughs> okay, so I think this is a clever bit of screenwriting, but we're going to play the game anyway. We know from the movie and from other things that three of the four are at the bar. Deke, Gordo, and Gus have both slept with these women. Right. We know that John Glenn and Scott Carpenter didn't. Right. So that leaves two guys. 
one of whom slept with them and the other one didn't. So it gives plausible deniability to them. Who is the, who's the one who, who's the, who's the other one of the three? And I guess our choices are Wally. That could have mm-hmm. been a scene for Lance Henderson. Maybe it was. Maybe they cut out his... Uh, maybe, maybe he, for was, months, right. he was working on this, sec- this graphic <laughs> sex scene. Right. And then they got... You know, we're going to get an X rating, and they had to cut it. And Lance is like, oh, that's, that was 15 minutes of the movie. That's why I took the role. <laughs> <laughs> so do you know the answer to this? or is this- No, I think, I think Philip Kaufman very cleverly wrote it. Yes, absolutely. So that right, right, you know, right, there's right. you know, he's not accusing. It could be anybody. It was these four. You know, we. It is. They never name names. It could be any four you want or any three you want. But it's right, pretty right. clear from what we know of Deke, Gus, and uh, Gordo that those three are in, and we know <clears throat> almost. We know for a hundred percent sure it wasn't Glenn, and, and, Scar- and we doubt it's Scott Carpenter. Yeah. So that leaves who? That leaves Wally. Wally and and Shepard. Yes, and I would okay. guess, given how mad Shepard gets in the next scene at John, which is oh, this is also great. Yeah, yeah, it's not him, so it's Wally. But in real <laughs> life, it was probably five to two, not four to three. I would think, yeah. Well, it probably was five to two when they were all said and done, and those and and the other two, yeah. It was just at that time there was it was four. So I equated this to another thing when I was a kid, which was so these these women and their goal, obviously, of trying to sleep with all seven Mercury astronauts. This is a very noble goal. Um, <laughs> about that same time, I was a kid. I was trying to collect all the Empire Strikes Back glasses from Burger King. Similar thing. And I had Dang. I was just as single minded as those two women clearly were. Right. So the next scene is one of my favorites for for a very weird reason. So it's <clears throat> the astronauts are like in their. They're in a hangar or whatever, and they're, get, they're putting their um, full astronaut suits on for summer. I guess for photos, because later yeah. we see them in front of the capsule. Right. Glenn decides to, you know, in his aw shucks, you know, pain in the ass Harry, way, he's going Harry to lecture them. Yes. Yeah. But he does it. He's wearing long underwear, thermal long underwear, the full ankles to his waist, then the long sleeve thing, and brown loafers. And I love it every time I watch it because he's, I'm like, how, like, you know, Rick Spielman, we talked about this because this is a football podcast. Usually Rick Spielman, general manager of the Vikings famously puts his shoes on before his pants, which makes no sense. And you should fire someone immediately for that. So apparently Glenn took his pants off with his shoes on. And why is he wearing long underwear in Florida? Or do they wear long underwear under the astronaut suit? I would under think suit, he's not. Yeah. Does he know that they're just going to go look at the capsule? They're not actually getting in it. <laughs> I have so many questions about that scene, and it's just that. But he starts to give them a lecture about how you know they sh- they can't be screwing around and all this stuff. And Shepard just shoot, cuts him down immediately and starts screwing yes. around, which has always made me think that Al was like, uh, no, I, I can I can bang whoever I want. Well, we won't get into it, but in the uh, in the television show, the right stuff. There's a Basically, one of the cool things about that show is they can go into incidents like that and really devote an entire episode or most of an episode yeah. to that. So they, they devote an episode basically to that conflict, what happened there between uh, between those two directly. Uh, but, yeah, but it's what you think it is. You know, Shepard and the guys were screwing around and yeah. Glenn was worried this was going to sink the program, right. which had, had was, it got he was out, right. yeah, he absolutely would have. Right. Yeah. 
So while they're in there screaming at each other, there's the, the, the great scene. There's reporters who are out front, and they want to go in and talk to the astronauts. And the one says, the press person is saying, you can't go in there, can't go in there. And the one guy goes, um, I'm with Life Magazine. I'm not with these guys. You know, basically pointing at all the other press like, I'm with Life. I matter. They don't matter. The That's press so person's great. great response is, you can't go in there. They're discussing scientific problems. So Love they immediately that. cut into it, and the, the, the very next line is Gus, who says, you've got it all wrong. The issue here isn't pussy. The issue here is monkey. I'm from Life magazine. I'm not with these people. Life. You can't go in there discussing scientific problems. John's right. Whether we like it or not, we're public figures. Whether we deserve it or not, people are going to look up to us. We have got a tremendous responsibility here. You cannot tell a pilot what he's doing when he's not you got it all wrong. The issue here ain't pussy. The issue here is monkey. <laughs> <laughs> That's the scientific problem they were discussing. Right. Yeah. Was that they were going to send a damn chimp up instead of them. <laughs> they could have given that. See, this is the thing. If you're Lance Hendrickson, you're like, Wally can't have one of these lines? Uh, yeah, right, yeah, can't yeah, Wally I mean, make the this isn't pussy, this is monkey line? Give me yeah. two lines. Oh, it'll be worth it. Everyone will remember that line. <laughs> They'll think I was talking, acting the whole time. Right. It's not. Yeah. The one line he has is completely forgettable. Yeah. It's not like he had what he had, yeah, he had one line, but it was one great line. No, it sucked. It's completely anonymous. And he's got to be like, and fucking Wally went. Yeah. Wally actually went into space. Deke didn't even nope. go. Nope. Deke, they found out he had a heart problem and he never got to go up. Yeah. But Deke is, you know, in the movie a lot. He, oh, I feel like we got to get Lance Hendrickson on to talk about this. Yeah. <laughs> so then they go look at the capsule and it doesn't have, there's no window. And so they're basically. Well, we, we find that because Gordo goes, uh, knocks on and goes, uh, <laughs> where do you think it put in the window? <laughs> window? Window? <laughs> oh, we didn't have for that. <laughs> and then, of course, it foreshadows something later because after they finally consent to the window, then Gordo or Gus says, oh, we need a hatch with explosive bolts. Right. <laughs> Out of nowhere. The hatch with the explosive bolts. Yeah, here there could be a hatch with but the explosive it, bolts. it does bear the question, how are they going to get him out of the capsule? How are we going to get him in it and get him out of it? There wasn't a door. I are think they going to unscrew a... the top and then put him in and then screw the top on? I think they, I think they reveal that when Alan, because when Shepard went up, he did not have a window. He had the old capsule. Oh, that's true. Yeah, he had the one because that was for future missions. That's when they were. Yeah, and so, so Gus had the first. Yeah, Gus was the first one to go up with the with the hatch. Right. So the, it was bolts and a wrench is is how Shepard was in there. I mean, but we know there was a. Obviously, there has to be a door. You're right. They just couldn't. They had to actually like, which would yeah. scare the shit out of it when you're floating around the ocean, and you're yeah. having you can't see, and you have to wait for somebody to come by with a lug wrench to let you out. <laughs> Yes. Although I yeah. think what they did, right, was didn't they actually just carry him back in the capsule? Like they hooked I, I, on and just took him and dropped him. I don't know. I guess they must have. I don't know. That's, That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so then right. um, then we <laughs> they're arguing about who's going to be who's going to be the first man in space. And they do the whole thing. They show the um, 
they show the capsule, they show the rocket taking off and everybody cheering in the command center and they show yeah. the capsule coming down with the thing on it and then they zoom in to reveal it and it's the monkey. Yeah, it's great. Which then prompts another scene in Edwards, which has Ridley and and Jaeger watching TV and they see the monkey and Ridley's great line is, (laughs) does he look like the kind of guy that would put doo-doo in the capsule? (laughs) Then we get another Jeff Goldblum springing down the hallway. Yep. And it was, it's Gregarin. We know. Sit down. We know, sit down. And that just pisses the astronauts off because they were clearly at a point where they could have gone up. You know, the, the, right. the overly cautious German scientists sent the monkey up. Although the Russians had put a dog up you know, yeah. before. Their first Russian was a German shepherd. So they get mad. And then that spurs them to finally accelerate things. And they're, they're going to send the first astronaut up. I don't know. You think this is the most famous scene in the movie? I think so. Where they're walking down. Well, yeah, there's that. There's the iconic, the astronauts all walking down the thing and the They're music packed. is swelling and all that stuff. But yeah. I mean, so now they get, they, you know, they, they, they don't reveal who it is. It's funny. Yes. It's American history. We know who it is. And then, because um, they want to set it up. Yeah, the world thought it was going to be Glenn. They want the movie viewer who doesn't know to think it's Glenn. Right. And the astronaut is sitting in the capsule. And then there's a sign that says no handball playing. No handball playing in and, and on that walk up though, against the thing that makes up the movie so great are all these little touches. There's a there's a guy, a crew like a worker, a crew member, who he he sees the face of the astronaut. We the audience don't see it yet. So we just see the back, but he sees the face and this guy goes <laughs> he, he like, what? Like the farted in front. It's you? <laughs> it's the most this look of disdain. Like, they picked that guy? And so, he, and then it's, so that was Alan Shepard, and you see that John Glenn has put the no handball playing in the capsule sign up, and right. Shepard says, not very funny, John, but I, but I appreciate the sentiment or whatever, and they shake hands. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. Um, but what I mean by famous, then, is, um, well, it starts with, the immortal, the shepherd's prayer, which is he's sitting there <laughs> and he doesn't realize that the mic is on and he goes, dear Lord, please don't let me fuck up. And Gordo <laughs> of all people happens to be the astronaut who's on the comm. He's like, right. um, I didn't, I didn't uh, quite get that. I didn't quite get that. Uh, everything's okay. Uh, that's what I thought. Uh, you said. Yeah. That's what I thought you said. Everything is a, and then, it, and then the news comes on, the newscaster yes. comes out and goes, he says, everything is a, okay. So do you know great, who, do you Great know way who, that just how they sanitize the message yes. from astronaut you, to press. Do you know who the newscaster is? Oh, I should know that. It's, I'm going to go with Eric Severide. It is Eric Severide playing himself okay. when I don't think he was terribly believable. <laughs> he, he, he did not. We're not he did really? not nail the role. I don't think <laughs> Eric. Do you think Eric Severide would say it that way? Well, I yeah. maybe not. I don't know. So then. There, like even in today's space program, if the launch is supposed to go off at eight o'clock in the morning, there's delay. There's going to be a delay. There's going to be whatever. And um, so, we've, after many delays, Shepard has to get on the thing and go, Gordo, Gordo, I have to urinate. Urinate? To, to which yeah, Werner von Braun says, No, tell him he cannot. And Gordo <laughs> says, Say, listen, old buddy, they promise we'll stop at the next gas station. <laughs> and then in a movie with the greatest montages short of a rocky training montage you get mm-hmm. all these water sounds yes a lot of water sounds you get um 
a coffee pot. Yeah, the sprinklers. A yeah. guy not only is is putting coffee into a thing, but then he spills it. Yeah. Even better. And then um, you hear Shepard's wife go, Alan must have had four cups of coffee before he went to work this morning. There's a they, Somebody walks by, the, gets water out of the water bubbler, and then the bubble thing goes, yeah. boop, 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 boop. Such a great way. Such a great way to build the tension of that scene. And now, and now we're all now all of us are in that capsule with Shepard. Like, yes, we all have to pee. Anybody in? And it's at the point in the movie where if you're in the theater, you've got to pee by now. You, yeah, you've been sitting. It's a three-hour movie. You, you're like, you're trying to figure out. Okay, when's a good? When can I run to the bathroom? And that scene is putting you over the edge. Even Wally Shiraz family is like, you know what? Fuck me. <laughs> yeah, his flight. I can't wait anymore. His, his flight's probably like a half hour away. We can, we can, we'll be fine. Come back for that launch. So then Alan goes, request permission to relieve bladder. He says, says it very officially yes. too. Look, the man has got to go. It's either that man. or we get the lug wrench and go pry him out. To which Werner says, do it in the suit. Jose, permission to wet your diaper at any time. <laughs> and then the sensors on the, the – the, they have like the schematic of the astronaut with all the sensors. And it starts like just under him and then just above his – they all start to like blink and go off. Which then I always think is funny because then it seemed – the way the movie is, it immediately seems like now that he's pissed himself, he's like, let's light this candle. <laughs> let's go. It's like, well, it's only a 15-minute flight. If you're going to – if we could have waited 15 minutes, yeah, right. let's just go up. There's another hold from NASA, another delay. Alan Shepard sits there patiently waiting. What can be going through a man's mind at this moment? Gordo. Gordo, I have to urinate. Urinate? No. Oh, boy. Urinate? Uh, no, we did not think of that. This is only a 15-minute flight. Yeah, well, the man's been up there for hours. Could he just do it in his suit? It might be dangerous to introduce liquid into the pure oxygen environment of the capsule and the pressure suit. It might cause a short circuit. It could start a fire. No, tell him he cannot. Say, listen, old buddy. They promise we'll stop at the next gas station. Request that you remain in a holding pattern till then. Request permission to relieve bladder. Now it's either that or we get out the lug wrench and let's go pry him out. Do it in the suit. Jose, permission granted to wet your diapers anytime, son. Mm. Mm. 
acute thermometer says freon flow, jumping from 30 to 45. Let lower chest sensor. No shorter. Moving up back. Well, yo. I'm a wet bag now. <laughs> it is questionable whether we can proceed. All right, I'm cooler than you are. Why don't you fix your little problems and light this candle? He's right. Let's light this candle. He surely is. Light the candle. Yes. Resume the countdown. <laughs> I'm cooler than you are. Let's light the candle. So then he goes up and he comes down and we get the cool shots and it's a nice mix. They do a good job of mixing like newsreel footage with real footage. And at one point you actually catch a glimpse of the real Alan Shepard. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Um, and then there's other, they did kind of the Forrest Gump thing where they. they I was put, just going to say, this was Forrest Gump before Forrest Gump yeah. where you see, and it looks pretty believable right. where you or, see Scott Glenn as Shepard, you know, interacting with Kennedy. Right. When Kennedy drops the metal. Yeah, and then goes this here. This this decoration comes from the ground up and puts it on his lapel because he's JFK and you know. very artfully done, very very skillfully done. Yeah, but then you get the whole thing where the Shepard gets out of the capsule and they they paint around his feet on the deck of the aircraft carrier and he there's a band playing there's all this stuff and then he goes to DC and he meets Kennedy and then um, they come out and the, wife, and the wives and all titter about she got to meet Jackie and what's Jackie like and all that stuff right. Which is all true. Oh, and then he gets the he gets the ticker tape parade through the Canyon of Heroes yeah. in New York and all right. that stuff. Which is all just setting up what's going to happen yeah. to Gus. Poor Gus. Which is ironic because a lot of it, honestly, probably all of it was going to happen that way anyway. He was the second mm-hmm. guy. Yeah. He was doing the exact same mission that Shepard did. Maybe he went a little bit farther, but there was it wasn't. So you weren't going to have. It wasn't going to go to the White House. You weren't going to do that stuff, but. They, the astronauts and their wives didn't know that. Right. And so <laughs> Betty is all, you know, she's all excited. She's excited, of course. And then um, they do a lot of stuff to, to put, to foreshadow all the things that could have gone wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, Gus and Gordo are in the bar and the kind of homely bartender, <laughs> Gus is flirting with her. And he's got like the little model of a capsule. Right. He's like, I, can you like? Of, I, I can get one of those from a dime store. <laughs> Not one that's been in outer space, you can't. <laughs> and he takes up a bunch of dimes. He yeah. Like wraps up dimes. Like, I'm going to get you one of these. And he tells Gordo, he's like, I'm going right. to give you one of these dimes I'm taking up. You can keep it in your pocket and you can touch it and think about what it's like to be in space. Well, well all right. <laughs> so <laughs> Gus goes up. Everything goes fine. Gus splashes down. down. And immediately, he makes a reference to the fact that he unhooks his suit, like, right away. And then he starts mm-hmm. to get, like, really hot because he's no yeah. longer being cooled. And he's bobbing along in the water. And like you said, now it's, he's the first one to actually have the window and the hatch. So now he can – it probably makes it a little worse. He can see, like, the – you know, mm-hmm. he can see the sky or whatever as he's bobbing around. And um, the helicopter guys come, and they're going to um, – they're going to latch on to the thing, and they tell him, let us, they keep asking him to give them permission to hook on. And once they've hooked on, then they tell him he can fire, he can release the hatch. And all of a sudden, the hatch fires open, and Gus kind of spills out into the water. Mm-hmm. 
And then he starts to freak out. And one of my favorite things is the helicopter guy goes, get the capsule. He could float in that suit. (laughs) Gus wants none of that. Well, the capsule starts to fill up with water. It's too heavy. They can't pull it up. They have to just throw the thing down and pull him in. And, you know, he gets off the helicopter then. There's nothing. It's just, you know, some some of the ground crew guys on the carrier kind of politely clapping as he goes in. Yeah, it's such a contrast to Shepard. And his experience, Gus is there, and he's like the he's like the turd in the punch bowl. Yeah. So he does get, um, he gets he gets interrogated first, I think, right? Mm-hmm. And so he's sitting there in front of the panel, and he's doing the the hatch just blew, and he's yelling right. and screaming and whatever. And he leaves, and then the the guys on the panel, one guy goes, um. Explosive hatches have been on jet fires for 10 years. The damn things have been wrung inside out, subjected to trial by heat, water, by shaking, pounding. We even dropped them from a height of 100 feet onto concrete, and none of them has just blown. Has ever just blown. blown. Like, and he comes out, and there's, there's a band, like, with eight people in it or whatever, playing, yeah. you know, whatever, anchors away or whatever they're playing. I don't know what they're playing for him. Down an airstrip, uh, yeah, like this deserted airstrip. And, but Betty's there to greet him. And yeah. Betty goes, are we going to the White House, Gus? Nah. Uh, Is uh, the president coming? Nope. He's, uh, he's grunts mostly. Yeah. Uh, a ticker tape parade in New York? No. Uh, Not uh, even in Mitchell, Indiana? Nope. Uh, Isn't Jackie coming? <laughs> like, uh, no. <laughs> so then they go, they put him up in a hotel in Cocoa Beach. Motel. Star- I think motel. it was a Starlight Motel. Yeah. Gus opens up the fridge to get a beer, and he's all excited because it's stocked. Hey, look. They, uh, they filled up the refrigerator. Pretty good, huh? Pretty good. A full refrigerator. Oh, I can see this afternoon shaping up just great. And the rest of the day, tomorrow, too. I mean, what did they want me to do in here? Cook? And then risk my life and my kids by dragging them across that highway to the worst beach in Florida. Oh, Gus, I wanted to eat in the White House. I wanted to talk to Jackie about things. Yeah, well, look, I've got to go to the Holiday Inn, you know, for some uh, beer call with the guys. No! Gus. Oh, all those years of test flying. And all those times I waited and all those times that you weren't there. The military promised. And now they're welching on that damn compact. Look, I am finally Mrs. Honorable Astronaut. But they are treating me like I'm... Honorable Mrs. Squirmin Hatchblower. I did not do anything wrong! The hatch just blew. It was a glitch. It was a, a technical malfunction. Why in hell would anyone believe me? <laughs> the full refrigerator. Yeah. And Betty starts screaming at him, and she's like, she goes, um, she goes, oh, this is just great. They put us in a hotel, and she points at you. They open up the drapes, and there's like six lanes of traffic going by. He's <laughs> yeah. like, so I have to risk the kid's life going across, going across all this traffic to the worst beach in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> And she's like, what am I supposed to do, cook? Because, you know, they think there's food, but there's nothing else. And then he's going to go to the bar with the guys. With his bar, yeah. <laughs> yeah. She has none of that. She starts screaming no. at him about how much the 
the NASA owes her and whatever. And yeah. then the <clears throat> reporters literally are like crawling on the on the balcony to get yeah. to him. And so they come out and she has composed herself and she talks about how proud she is of him or whatever. And she was not proud. And the, and the reporter, he's got like a Gene Rayburn microphone yeah. <laughs> from the, the match game microphone. Yeah, and, a, uh, there was a thing about the press horde that Philip Kaufman like wanted a distinctive sound. And the sound is because you hear it whenever they appear. The sound is uh, cameras you know, just, but also there's apparently there's like sounds of beetles, the bugs, yeah, not the well, band. Well, Shepard uh, calls them root weevils. Yeah. And the whole idea is he just wants that, that sound, whenever the media shows up, that's the sound yeah. you hear. And then that one guy with the like Errol Flynn mustache and the little skinny right. microphone is like the only guy you ever hear talk. Yeah. He's certainly the only non-life magazine guy you ever hear talk. Yes. Um, yeah, so that's when we get the uh, then we get the scene with the um, uh, Jaeger and Ridley, where Jaeger defends the astronauts yeah. and Gus in particular. Yeah. <clears throat> and apparently, that was the, the the real astronauts didn't like most of them didn't like the book. Mm-hmm. None of them really liked the movie. They felt like it portrayed the test pilots as the as the guys who had their actual ability. And the astronauts were just, you know, spamming a can. But they really were mad at how Gus was portrayed because um, they they always believed him. You know, the, you, the guy can give the little the monologue about, you know, we dropped it from 100 feet, we've done whatever. Well, you've never blasted the damn bolts into outer space and then landed them in the ocean. Right. And they also redesigned them for Glenn's. So apparently somebody must have thought, that there was something to it. The other thing yeah. was, if if Grissom was this fuck up, why was he picked for Apollo? Right. Clearly, uh, they uh, knew he was a great astronaut and the guy they wanted. So, um, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what the what the thought at the time was that he screwed up. I don't think so. I think the narrative that Gus really screwed something up is a byproduct of the book and the movie. I don't think that that Americans in 1963 or whatever it was, because it was just a few months before, um, or was Glenn. One of these was just a few months before Kenny got killed. Mm-hmm. Um, thought that, and the other thing is, I've, even if he had screwed up. Well, certainly the public didn't know that. I gonna, mean, the public it, was never going to know that one of the astronauts screwed something up. Right. Which right. is probably when what they, Wolf and Kaufman thought they were uncovering. Yeah. Well, when they they do the reenactment of the of the news footage, you know, you have Se- I think it's Severide saying, "There's Gus yelling for them. Yes, to take the ca- save the capsule." <laughs> when he's really yelling, "Save me, help me!" Right. <laughs> so clearly, whatever the yeah, I, there, I'm sure there was no backlash. I, I also I'm pretty sure that um, the order was selected by the astronauts, so that would have meant that um, Gus was second. You know, so being so, he would have been very popular. Yeah. Um, so I could see why they would be, you know, upset at that day because it, it definitely. I mean, they they leave it they leave it as a mystery. Was this Gus's fault? Did he pop it, or did it just blow? They leave it as a mystery, but they definitely skew it towards. Yeah, Gus probably screwed this yeah. up. Yeah, the movie. That's the the movie has. 
Yeah, you leave the movie if you don't know anything else about it, assuming Gus screwed up. Even to the point yeah. where when he first sits down in that room after he's landed, all the little capsules and dimes fall out of his pockets, and he's like scrambling <laughs> to pick them up. Yeah. Given the idea that, well, maybe there was just something loose in the cabin, in the too, cab. that, you know, made something, made a button push or whatever. Right, right. I, I believe Gus. I believe Gus, too. So now we're only, we're 45 minutes into the movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's three hours to go. We don't, when, the, when, they, when we first meet all the astronaut wives, we don't know that Annie Glenn stutters. Right. And she runs, they have a scene where they're coming out of a press thing, and Trudy Cooper says to her something like, I forget what it is, but Annie doesn't reply. And Trudy well, acts like she's like, God, she's so stuck up. Right. But then clearly the wives all get to know each other and they well, realize. I think, I think it's the next scene we see Glenn, John and Annie together. I think that's where we learn in the hotel room when they're together that that's where we learn. That right. That's what we know. Yeah. That's where they do yeah. the. Right. And it's a, funny, yeah, it's a good thing. scene where he's, you yeah. know, he knows that the guys are all screwing around. He's like, oh, but they're, and he's, he's being complimentary, but he's holding back a little bit. And he's like, oh, but really deep down, they're good boys and they're, they're great men yeah. and blah, blah, blah. And he's like, oh, I think they might think I'm kind of square, like a howdy doody or a hairy hair shirt. And she and he had a boy, yeah. hairy hair shirt. What's a hairy hair shirt, by the way? <laughs> hairy hair shirt. <laughs> <laughs> and she just starts nodding at him. And he's like, do you, am I those things? He's like, uh-huh, pretty much. Which is Mind that we do right? <laughs> so that comes into play later, is that where you were going, when it's Glenn's turn to come yeah, up? Yeah, because now, now it's Glenn's turn. And um, it's a, the Glenn flight is the longest individual segment, I think, of the movie, because they have to set up yeah. the fact that he's going to actually be orbiting. So they send Gordo down to Australia. Right. Because somebody's got to be able to talk to him when he's on the other side of the earth. Um so we have to do that. He meets the Aborigines and the weird, you know, that kind of weird stuff. Um, but then, so Glenn goes up and they show just how, um, well, we've already seen it before once. When, when Shepard went up, they show the press around the Shepard's house and the poor diaper guy is getting attacked by the press. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's like, right. now they're attacking your diaper guy. Like, we don't have a diaper guy. And they're literally, That's you see right, diapers man. literally flying, <laughs> used diapers flying right. in the air. So now it's John Glenn's house. There's all those people out there, but there's an additional person out there because the vice president of the United States, <laughs> Lyndon Baines Johnson, is sitting mm -hmm. in a sitting in his limo right out front, and they just want to get a publicity shot of him. You know, basically, you know, uh, not comforting is not the right word, but like, um, you know, commiserating also in the right word. It's hanging out with the wife as her husband yeah, it, is orbiting. You're right, and uh, she does not want to go. It is, is, I think it's, this is when his flight was scrubbed, right? Wasn't yeah, that so they're still, they're waiting and waiting and waiting. And, and then LB John doesn't go up because yeah. it's got scrubbed. And so that's when LBJ, oh, I, 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 that's perfect. Yeah. I'm so. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that's when, and they, and the wives don't let him in. They tell right. Johnson, no. Yeah. And he can't believe it. No. What do you mean? No. He's, um. And he's sitting there, and there's a reporter sitting in the limo with him, who's gonna like, who's gonna like write about this wonderful meeting between him and Annie Glenn. And um, he goes, um, "You know, you know what the Russians want? Yeah, they want our peckers in their pockets." 
And the re- the reporter, she looks at him and she takes her pen and she starts to write something. She's like, I can't write that. And she just doesn't write. It's just that great, <laughs> yeah. like, Ugh. yeah. And that's when we get the that's when we get that scene where the anonymous head of program guy is right. he tells John. John gets out of the capsule and he goes, John, there's a problem with your wife. And John goes, <laughs> makes, it sound, makes it sound very serious. He goes, is it serious? And he goes, we right. think it is. And so John like runs to the phone. Right, the payphone. Yes. Not even have a regular phone. He's got a payphone. <laughs> I'm surprised he didn't. The gore, they want that. You know what a great scene would have been? It would have been like him like doing this, and and uh, Gus gives him some of the dimes that he just <laughs> to put into the thing. They've been in space. Oh, good. Or, or, or maybe Wally could have said, "John, I got a quarter." Yeah, we should just go through and reinsert like little. What are? Let's give some of the lines to Wally. Poor Wally. Yeah, let's just invent lines for Wally so he could be part of this film. <sighs> Yeah, they even say, this is serious, we think it is, we've got her on a phone hookup. (laughs) What technology? (laughs) Technology in the 60s, they can get somebody on the telephone. Right, because she's in Ohio, and we're not sure they have telephones there yet. So Glenn says to her, Annie, listen to me. Are you listening? (laughs) If you don't want the vice president or the TV networks or anybody else coming into the house, then that's it. As far as I'm concerned, they are not coming in, and I will back you up 100%, and you tell them that. I don't want Johnson or the rest of them to step as much as one toe inside our house. You tell them that astronaut John Glenn told you to say that. <laughs> and, uh, and Johnson's in the car having a fit. Can't anyone deal with a housewife? <laughs> uses, yes, he somehow uses the word gladiolas as an expletive. Gladiolas. <laughs> Sulking. He's so great. Um. And that's the moment too, where 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 all where as you point out, all now all the astronauts have Glenn's back at that point. So where they were two factions earlier, there was the Carpenter Glenn faction, and then the the rest. Now that's all done. Yeah, now it, well, it's, it's funny they kind of one team. yeah they kind of evolved from there were the Navy guys, the Air Force guys, and the Marines. Then there was the guys who want to cheat on their wives. And the guys who don't, <laughs> and now yeah, they're finally one one collective right. unit, and then Wally, yeah, and then Wally who's over there, like you know, I just want a line. Yeah, Wally's doing the thing with the fake can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> He's still doing that. <laughs> like, Wally Wally's kept playing that prank right? <laughs> instead of no play ball playing in there. Wally's there with a can. Worm comes up and watch, Wally, watch your fingers. Here. Is that his one line? Watch your fingers. Yeah, I think it's yeah. Because yeah, there's one of the Indians in the <laughs> clinic. He's showing him. He's got like this. It doesn't look like a can. It looks like a box. And he's doing yeah. I think it's a box. Watch right. your fingers. And he opens it up, and the worms come flying out of it. Yes. Right, right. And then Gordo, with such disdain, goes real swabo sense of humor. <laughs> Wally being a Navy guy. <clears throat> so then Glenn finally gets to go up. And he becomes the first. Finally, we get a first for the Americans. He's the finally. first first man. Actually, Alan Shepard was the first free man in space. That's right. As, head a, of, as the head of head of head program, of, head of, head of program. <laughs> pointed out. So right. now, finally, the Americans do something first. He orbits, and he's uh, in the movie. He's supposed to orbit seven times. Yeah. Friendship Friendship Seven is the name of his. Yeah, ship. and they they realize that um, his landing bag has not deployed, whatever the hell that is. But basically what their fear is, is that the heat shield 
is going to fall off the capsule, which would right, be right. a problem because then he would burn up on reentry and he would die. Yeah. So while he's zipping around, they're having all these conversations in the background with him unbeknownst the fact that uh, that's going to happen. And they come up with the, with the plan, which is the booster rocket or the little booster engine thing at the bottom is still attached. And it's attached with these straps. And they're like, okay, well, if the straps hold, that will hold the heat shield on. And then if he comes in at just the right angle, that ought to be okay. Um, it does not explain why they would have to have cut his orbits short. Because he's right. safe orbiting the Earth. And uh, according to Wikipedia, Wikipedia's never wrong. Never. Um, he was not, he wasn't he wasn't supposed to, and maybe you're right because Friendship Seven. They said he wasn't really supposed to do seven. That it was just a movie thing where they uh, startle him by telling him he has to come in uh, early. Hmm. But uh, the other thing that may have worried them to the point where they're like, "Well, we don't know what's going on, so we better get him out of there." Was he starts to see these little sparks? These he calls Firefly. them fireflies, and he's right. worried that they think he's nuts. They don't think he's nuts. They're worried that the capsule's somehow on fire. <laughs> and they're like, "What? Right. What is he seeing?" <laughs> yeah, and that's 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 always that's that. Those were never really explained. The fireflies. Yeah. He takes pictures that's, of them. Yeah, they're there's something there. I mean, he thinks at one point he's worries. He's actually worried that that might be alive. The fireflies. Yeah. And then there's this weird connection right to now we're back to Gordo in Australia with the Aborigines are lighting a fire and there's, yeah. there's, and somehow it's a, so like an ethereal sort of connection or something that the fire, the movie implies the, that the fire comes from Australia, yes. the ground up into space right. and is like maybe protecting somehow the land. Protecting him, yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. It is the, it's the, it's the least straightforward part of the movie and definitely seems yeah. a little out of, um, but then, because it wasn't an actual thing, he did actually see something yes. that he did see these fireflies that they really so, never adequately explained. They tell him it's time yeah. to land. They kind of matter-of-factly give him the angle it is to come in. But they do tell, they do explain to him what's wrong and that he's got to leave the thing on and that he might burn up. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, right. Well, and then, then there's the great well, thing that, that's in every space movie ever where he's starting to come down and it's, it's, it's this ball of fire. Right. And... Um, she I think it's Shepard, right? He's on the com with him. Shep that Shepard's on Cap on Capcom because Shepard has a great line earlier. Like, what do we tell him? He's a pilot. You tell him the condition of his craft. <laughs> <laughs> he can't get him to respond. So there's yeah. one guy who's whole, and they should cast this guy in every space movie because it happens right. in every space movie. There's always the one right. guy who has to explain that we're going to lose <laughs> communications for a few minutes. Right. Nobody. It's always a surprise. None of the uh, no. hundred, hundred engineers right. know this. No, and the astronauts, two of whom have yeah. already been in space, they're also <laughs> yeah, they shocked by it. Like, wait, what? What do you mean? <laughs> well, that's like, why you didn't respond when I was landing. <laughs> oh, I get it. Is that why we had to send? We had, but we have Gordo on the other side of the Earth. I thought we covered this. No, we didn't. <laughs> yeah, right. Gordo's sending fireflies up there. So, um, and this, this, these are the kind of effects that even though that movie's 37 years old, do not look dated at all. That thing comes in, it's covered in flames, and it looks amazing. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. Uh, splashes down. He's fine. 
And then just to piss off Betty Grissom, they give him a ticker tape parade. Right. He's the full hero. Just imagine how mad she was then. (laughs) Son of a bitch. There's another thing funny about, you know, they they show it in, in, uh, I'm sure it was true for all the landings, but when Grissom lands, it's very obvious that the helic with the helicopter there to pick him up, there's like one helicopter and you don't even see the carrier anywhere near it. <laughs> it's like it's like an ocean, and we got we're sending Gus, we're sending one copter for you. I mean, you know, if a, a splash would happen, there'd be five thousand helicopters surrounding them, and ships, and guys in boats, and everything else. How big? Can, how big can the ocean be? We'll find him. <laughs> so then we get this um, the odd juxtaposition of Jaeger. The, the new plane has finally arrived. They show it off, yeah. whatever yeah. this fancy thing is. And in the movie, Jaeger just – first, Jaeger find, comments that uh, some Russian has just gone up 114,000 feet in a plane. And then Jaeger just hops in this plane. And the guys <laughs> in the tower are like, what was that? It doesn't have authorization. And the guys – what's oh, Jaeger? He must have authorization. It's Chuck Jaeger, right. and he takes off. Well, that's bullshit. You know, yeah. they always made it seem like Jaeger's flights were like these spontaneous, hey, let's get up in the plane and go. It's like, no, there was, he, they, he was supposed to go. Right. So he takes off, and while he's doing that, the astronauts are in Houston, in the Astrodome, at this huge barbecue to celebrate the wow. fact that LBJ got this space center named after himself. Yep. And uh, that's where they have the scene with uh, <clears throat> Gordo and Gus about the, you know, I get $25,000 a year, and I got a magazine mm-hmm. contract and I got a Corvette and I haven't even been up yet or whatever. But there's another great part of that where this drunk Texan comes up and knows <laughs> that Shepard is an astronaut. Mm-hmm. He walks up to him and goes, which one are you? And he goes, Shepard. Oh, which one's Glenn? That's the one I want to meet. Where's he at? And he runs off and Shepard, uh, he goes, he's over there. So the guy takes off. Shepard looks at his wife and goes, Louise, I swear to God, I'm going to the moon. Yeah. <laughs> All because some Texas yelled at him. Right. Right. And of course, it's, you know, of course they, you know, because they have that rivalry. Of course, that really pisses up. Of all the guys he's going to ask, yep. yeah, Shepard, where Glenn is. That's one I want to meet. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, re- and that's also where you see, there's also a portrayal of the different lifestyles now, right? You got Ridley and Jaeger. They're still out there in the desert. I'm not completely anonymous. Yep. Nobody cares. You know, there's no money, there's no attention, there's no, there's no press even at that point. There's just those guys in the desert with their planes. And then, yeah, literally the Astrodome filled where the astronauts, they got not, not only their Corvettes, they got a free house, they got free, they're getting free furniture. You know, Gordo says they had a free lunch, you know, from one end of America to the other. They got Sally Rand performing her ostrich feather dance <laughs> entertainment. All of the, all of the, everything that's great now is heaped upon the astronauts. And these were the guys at the beginning who all the, you know, test pilots were, you know, um, making fun of or, or didn't want to be that. Everything is flipped around. The earth is 180 degrees different at this point. Their worlds are. And Shepard is trying to see how, what altitude he can get the plane to. And he's going higher and higher and higher. And he gets past the 114. And then he looks like he's just about to go, all right, well, good. And he's going to start to bring it down. And the engine cuts out. And he's mm-hmm. still 
you know, momentum is still carrying up a little and he's trying to fire the rockets and they won't. And he's like, for the first time, he looks concerned. <laughs> he's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and it just starts to, and it, by now though, the, the sky has turned from, you know, at first it's kind of light blue and then it gets a little darker. Now it's black and he can see stars. So he's basically an astronaut at this point. He's, you're supposed to get the idea. And I suppose if you're at 120,000 feet or whatever, you probably are in orbit yeah. or close to orbit. So now he's a spaceman too, and he starts to come back down. And he's wrestling with it and trying to get it to restart and all that other stuff. He eventually, it's just spinning out of control. He gets it at least leveled up enough where he can eject. And he ejects, and he's got this smoke stuff coming off the back of him. Um, but he finally pulls the ripcord, and the parachute goes up. And I always wondered when they would go up in these, how the hell did they, how long did it take to find them? I mean, how would you even yeah. know where to look out in the freaking right. desert as to where he is? Yeah, one, one helicopter circling the desert looking right. for him. But anyway, because Ridley's always everywhere. Him and another yeah. guy are out in a Jeep. And Ridley's oh, last, last line in it is the guy driving the Jeep goes, they could see this little silhouette coming towards them. And he goes, is that a man? And Ridley goes, I got to get it right. Yeah, you're damn right it is. <laughs> So now, um, I didn't realize this, and I wouldn't even looked it up if it wasn't. So Chuck Gittles, who's a friend of mine for a long time, and when we brought up the right stuff previously, he chimed in with the fact that he still loves the movie, but he has a hard time with that scene in particular because the stuntman who did the parachute jump died. So I had to look this up. What happens to Jaeger is... <clears throat> something happens in his suit and it's either oxygen mixing with something else, but there's the smoke that starts to come off of him and it was disorienting him. And he managed to get the, the shield on his helmet up and then the smoke started, it must've been coming into the helmet. And so then it went out and then he got his wits about him and he was able to pull the ripcord and go well for the stunt, a green beret from Vietnam uh, by the name of Leonard Joseph Sveck. Uh, did the stunt. He'd done other stunts for um, other things, including uh, my favorite uh, TV show when I was a kid, Lee Majors, The Fall Guy. <laughs> uh, so they took him up. All he, The part he was supposed to do was um, they took him up in a Cessna, had him jump out, had this canister thing on the back with some smoke on it, let the smoke go for a while, spin around, seem kind of panicked, and then pull the thing, and then we'll get you landing. Mm-hmm. What they think happened was the smoke canister thing started to go off and got in his face and other places and disoriented him where he lost track of how high he was and was hit, was struggling with trying to get whatever. And he never pulled the ripcord. Wow. So he just pff, right That's in the horrible. desert. Yeah. Um, but, and part of what they show is him. So you do actually see him. Part of in the that stunt yeah. in the air is him, which is not great, but no, no. Wow. So, so that happens. And then, um, we go to the movies winding down and we see the, we see the rocket and we zip up into the capsule and there in the capsule, Gordo sound asleep. Sound asleep. Call Snoring. back to, right. Call back to earlier in the movie when they, arrive at Edwards and go and check into their military housing. Gordo faced on it, face planted on the couch. So they have to wake him up. Oh, another great part of that. Oh, I forgot this in the Astrodome scene. Um, 
Because Gordo's going to go up next. He's the last one who's going to go up. He's getting interviewed. And he gets asked, and probably, but it's a movie, he gets asked, who's the best pilot he ever saw? We're talking to Gordon Cooper, who will be the next American astronaut to orbit the Earth. Gordon. Uh, Mr. Cooper, since you're the last of the original seven, and the least well-known, could you begin by telling us, who was the best pilot you ever saw? Who was the best pilot I ever saw? (laughs) (laughs) Who was the best pilot I ever saw? Well, I tell you, I've seen a lot of them. And most of them are just pictures on a wall. Excuse me. I said pictures on a wall. Thank you. Back at some place that uh, doesn't even exist anymore. Mr. Mr. Cooper. And uh, some of them are right here in this room. And some of them are. Uh, they're still out there somewhere, doing what they always do, going up each day in a hurtling piece of machinery, putting their hides out on a line, hanging it out over the edge, pushing back the outside of that envelope and hauling it back in. But there was one pilot I once saw who I think uh, truly did have the right. How close did you ever come to not being a politician? Who was the best pilot I ever saw? Well, uh, you're looking at him. (laughs) And he gets this grin on his face because he's going to get to deliver his iconic line. But then he decides, right, but he decides he better give a serious answer. And so he starts to talk about the guys at Edwards and he starts to go whatever. Well, the the reporters lose interest immediately at his answer and literally start to leave. And he goes, "Uh uh-oh, who's the best pilot I ever saw? You're looking at him. So he finally gets to give it um, with them around. It's a really artful way of giving a nice tribute to to the pilots, and also yeah, he gives a little tribute to Gus, who's sitting right next to him. He touches him on the shoulder, um, and then yeah, but it brings it back to Gordo right at the end. Uh, you're looking at him. What, so then they, they wake doing? they wake him up. <laughs> he acts like he's up. ready to go. We got a launch here. <laughs> uh huh. And so the movie ends with him. Um, him clearing the tower and Gus, you know, screaming, go hot dog, go, which was his nickname go, for him. Go hot dog, go. Right. And then we get the, the voiceover at the end. Mercury 
program was over. Four years later, astronaut Gus Grissom was killed, along with astronauts White and Chaffee, when fire swept through their Apollo capsule. But on that glorious day in May 1963, Gordo Cooper went higher, farther, and faster than any other American. 22 complete orbits around the world. He was the last American ever to go into space alone. And for a brief moment, Gordo Cooper became the greatest pilot anyone had ever seen. Awesome way to end it. So I don't think we suffered from them throwing as great a screenwriter as William Goldman is. I don't think we suffered from them tossing it because no. the one Philip Kaufman wrote has so many nice things that call back to other things. He sets things up, you know, like you're supposed to when you write something like that. Yes. And that, and that's the movie. Was there, was there a nurse merch thing you wanted to talk oh, about? Oh yeah. Yeah. Nurse merch. So there's this, uh, there's a great scene when they're in the clinic. They have this very kind of oddly prissy, prudy nurse um, who was giving them orders, one of whom is she basically tells Gordo that they need a semen sample <laughs> from him. But he says, he says to Gus, right, says, I broke the code, um, you know, that one of us is supposed to, you know, bed nurse merch. Right. And... Um, that's when, so, you know, he's estranged from Trudy. She brings him in and basically says, I, I want to meet your wife. And I need to meet your wife tomorrow. So he has to drive all the way to San Diego to pick her up. He goes, oh, t- oh tomorrow's no good. Tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, tomorrow's no good. <laughs> and plead Nurse with her the entire yeah. way back to <laughs> act like they have a stable marriage because uh, they have to, ha- he, he's not going to make the program if they don't. And there was a great scene where he's – it's like a little kid whose mom has come into the principal's office. He's sitting on this little chair outside the thing, and the nurse and Trudy are both laughing at – you know, they're both laughing you know, outrageously. <laughs> right. And uh, she comes out, and he basically – how's it you – know, how'd it go? And she's like, it went fine. She's like, but Gordo, she knows. <laughs> she knows what you're all about. Yeah. Um, so yeah, because the, it went great. I, I lied. I had a girl. <laughs> the actress who played Nurse Merch was named Jane Dornicker, and she was in the band The Tubes. So yeah, another musical person that he cast. Huh. Wow! Um, but she died three years later. She was only thirty-nine. That's why you never saw her uh. in anything else. How did she die? Do we know? Okay, so she had been in the band. She had been in a um, because the tubes lineup changed a lot, but she was in it for a few years. Oh, hey, she, hold on, she she was a a U.S. postal worker turned comedian and musician. Yeah, she was in a um an improv group in 1982 with, amongst other people, Nora Dunn and Paula Poundstone. The improv mm. group was called Femprov, and then she went to work as a traffic reporter in the ni- in the 1980s. Um, oh, she was in two different helicopter crashes. She survived the first one in April of 1985, but was killed in the second on October 22nd, 1986. Yeah, it says here, killed doing a traffic report on WNBC AM in New York City, much to the horror and dismay 
of radio host Joey Reynolds and the millions of WNBC AM listeners who heard the terrified voice of Jane Dormecker screaming, hit the water, hit the water, hit the water, as the helicopter from which she and pilot Bill Pate were reporting fell from the sky and crashed into the Hudson. Wow. That's horrifying. Wow. Poor Jane Dormecker. Yeah, that's terrible. That's terrible. Yeah, the other actress I wanted to comment on was, um, so Barbara Hershey plays Mm. Glennis Yeager uh, at the at the height of her fame and beauty. I mean, she's incredibly beautiful in the movie. Yeah. Um, and this people should know that she played. She was Glennis Yeager uh, one year before she shot Roy Hobbs in a hotel. Of <laughs> course, she played somebody who did. So yeah, so back to back years, she was in the right stuff and the natural. Not bad. Oh, and then right after that, she was in Hoosiers. That's right. And I don't know when Beaches came along. And anyway, she's had a uh, yeah. had a pretty good career. Um, but you had you have info about Trudy Cooper that I did not know because you well, watched we, the National Geographic, the right stuff thing, which is which is because it's National Geographic, it's true. Unlike <laughs> unlike Wikipedia, right? Well, we were just talking that they it did not. Judy was Trudy was definitely a pilot which is not something that comes up at all in the movie. No. Which is interesting that it didn't come up uh, at yeah. all. In and the, I wonder if it's in the book. I'm going to have to reread the book now. I mean, it can't, to it has to be. I, mean, I don't think Tom yeah. Wolf would have missed that. I don't think he would have missed that either. Yeah. And I, I'm on, un, I'm unclear as to how much uh, exactly how true it is, but in the, in the TV show, it, it's very much portrayed that she, you know, was part of, uh, of a budding female astronaut core. And, um, um, Gordo was <laughs> in typical Gordo fashion, not particularly helpful. And that added some additional strain on their, um, uh, on their marriage that I think they're still working through in the TV show. Cause I've got a few episodes to go still. Well, and I found that really interesting because there's a, so the Disney plus, um, national geographic right stuff is supposed to be a, um, dramatized. It's a docudrama. It's supposed mm-hmm. to be the stuff that really happened. Um, but then Apple Plus has a show called For All Mankind. And it's it's the alternative. Um, what would have happened had the, um, had the Russians gotten to the moon before us? That's the whole yeah. idea behind it. And they have a lot of fictional characters mixed in with actual um, – you know, astronauts and um, other people in NASA. And one of the real people in it, Gordo and Trudy Cooper are in it, and Trudy becomes an astronaut in the show, which I always thought was just ridiculous. I was like, okay, well, whatever. What's the coincidence? You know, he's an astronaut, so she's going to be an astronaut too. Mm-hmm. And then it turns out that they based it at least, you know, they could have been, if you're doing an alternate history, an astronaut's wife who will try to become an astronaut, that does seem like something you should put into your alternate version of what would have happened. So it makes right. more sense. Right. Yeah. All right. So I wanted to ask you, I have two more questions for you. Um, All this time I only got one, one, we only did one of the three. Yeah. The other two are pr- uh, relatively quick. Okay. Um, okay. So if you were going to, if they cast you to play somebody mm. in this movie, Ooh. who would you play? Wally Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> give it a lot of just throwing a lot of do a lot of extra like improv stuff oh uh, let's see I, so that's another way of saying who's kind of the most 
interesting character. You know, you look at, I mean, Goss would probably be the most natural just in terms of like physicality. But if you, you know, because you've got Gordo, you've got Glenn, you've got Shepard. All of them, I don't want to say play, seem to play maybe kind of heightened versions of themselves a little bit. Like, you know, Glenn is a super 100%, 100%, which he says 100 times, yep. all American, all American boy. Gordo is the cool, fun, goofy, whatever he is. And Shepard is just, just cool, no matter, no matter what he does. Um, so all of those guys would be very interesting to play. I, th- I think, I think it'd be fun. It'd be, so I've mean, there'd be so many fun characters, but it'd be fun to be one of the two guys, Shearer and Goldblum. They'd be fun. Mm-hmm. You know, Gus would be fun. Um, yeah. Who would you, who would you pick? I would be, I'd be Deke Slayton. But, Deke? Okay. For the, but I would want this. I get to be Deke anytime Deke's in a movie. <laughs> so I get to be Deke in the right stuff. I get to be okay. Deke in, uh, in all the, in the, uh, for the earth to the moon on all those. Yep. I get to be Deke in Apollo 13. I get nice. to be Deke. Deke's in everything. And Deke's always played by, it's funny. There was, um, on Justified, one of the seasons, um, the Deke from Apollo 13 and the Deke from the Earth to the Moon were both in an episode together and actually had a scene together. <laughs> Dueling Deeks. Yeah. I thought, oh, we need more of that. So awesome. Deke. Plus, then I get to swim with uh, shorts and a belt, which I've always right. wanted to do. Which should be which should be good. Yes. Okay, the other question I wanted was um, the one guy that I felt like should have been in this movie, he was still around at the time, he would have been perfect, is one of my favorite all-time actors, it was is Trey Wilson. And for people who don't know who Trey Wilson is, Trey played two of the greatest characters in movie history. He played Nathan Arizona in Raising Arizona, the unpainted furniture magnet whose son gets kidnapped and has one of the immortal lines. Right, I'll get to the point. Was the child oh, wearing are... anything when he was abducted? Nobody sleeps naked in this house. I am asking the wearing... questions, officer. If we're going to put an APB out, I need a description. He was wearing... better trained to intervene in a crisis situation. What was he wearing? A dinner jacket. What do you think? He's wearing his damn jammies. Child was wearing his jammies. You happy? Do you have any disgruntled employees? Hell, they're all disgruntled. I ain't running a damn daisy farm. What did the my motto say? is do it my way or watch your butt. So what you think it might have been an employee? Oh, don't make me laugh. Without my say-so, they wouldn't piss with their pants on fire. What did the pajamas look like? I don't know. They were jammies. They had Yodas and shit on them. So he's that guy. Right. And he's the manager in Bull Durham. He's the... Mississippi, two Mississippi, four Mississippi, What's our record, Larry? Eight and 16. Eight and 16. How'd we ever win eight? It's a miracle. It's a miracle. Yeah, it's great. So he should be in this movie. Who should he have played? 
in this movie. Ridley. Yeah, he'd have been a great Ridley. That's a good a great, call. Yeah. He could have been Although him. He could, I mean, would have been a good Gus. But he, yeah. But Fred, good War, Fred, but, but we don't... I'd say of the of the more iconic performances in the right stuff, three of them I think are Levon Helm as Ridley. You don't even know who the guy is, but you remember like everything he does in the movie. Yes, Fred Ward gets to just to chew scenery as Gus and does it very well, and then Sam Shepard as Chuck Yeager. He just gets to be cool and do whatever. Right. And then of course, um, and people immediately think, like you said before, for to a lot of people, Ed Harris is John Glenn. You know, people our age, when you think of John Glenn, you don't picture John Glenn. You picture Ed Harris. That's John right. Glenn. Um, but and I it's jarring watching the TV show for the first yeah, couple of somebody goes, else be John yeah, Glenn. Yeah, you're not yeah. John Glenn. That's not right. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. Because uh, I'd, I'd, like, I'd like to cast Trey in every movie ever. Um, and he died way too soon. He died in his 41, I think. He was Something in a like lot that. of stuff. I mean, he really, yeah. for a guy, it's not the John Casale or Cazale, I would say his name wrong, who Cazale, was only yeah. in was only in five movies ever, and four of them were nominated for Best Picture, whatever that stat was, and he was amazing yeah. in all of them. All um, of them were out here nominated, yeah. You know, Trey Meryl was Street. in. They did Meryl Streep. Yes, he did. Yeah. Uh, he was, Trey, he wasn't, everything he was in wasn't great. Uh, I don't know that Vampire Hookers uh, was... Uh, <laughs> Underrated, great. very, very underrated. Could be. Um, He's in Silence of the Lambs. He played. Oh, here this brings it back full circle. He was in in the movie Robert Kennedy and His Times miniseries. He played Jimmy Hoffa. Oh, there you go. Yeah. He was in FX. He played Lieutenant Murdoch. Played yeah. Nathan Arizona Senior in Raising Arizona, of course. Then Bull Durham a couple years later. He was in Married to the Mob. He was in Twins. Twins. There he was in Great Balls of Fire. And then the last thing he ever played was defense attorney Eddie Cosmatos on Law and Order, and then he died. Sad. Why did he get a special? It was dedicated to. He got it dedicated to in the Silence of the Lambs. I wonder why. I wonder if he was supposed to be in it. Maybe. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, maybe that was it. Maybe he was yeah, supposed to. He be succumbed it. to a cerebral hemorrhage only days before his forty-first birthday. Oh my goodness. But, uh, yeah, he could have been yeah, – they could have saved money. They could have had him play multiple characters. Absolutely. That's how you make the budget. You cast Trey on it, and Trey can be – he can be Gus and Ridley. And he could have been – I'm sure put a wig on him. He could have been Pancho. Right. <laughs> you could be Gus. Pancho. Yeah. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, now I, I'm like Alan Shepard now. I got to – Yeah. Where do I have to urinate? <laughs> Go in the suit. You can go in the suit. Well, you know what, though? I mean, you know, this was a long podcast, two hours long. But the movie, it's like three hours and 20 minutes long. So think about that. warmed up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, time to get popcorn if we're watching the movie. But this was fun. Yeah. This this was a lot of fun. All right. Well, we'll see you next week then. Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks, Mike. All right. Thank you. I have to go urinate.